Welcome to the Triple Threat Podcast here on iTunes on the two-man power trip of wrestling's network. As we get into rolling out the Triple Threat Podcast here on iTunes, we just want to take a minute here and kind of go over very quickly the fact that this show was originally broadcast on the IRW network, and we have since moved this over to the iTunes feed here so you can check it out every single week exclusively here, downloaded with us, producing it all in-house on the two-man power trip. But before we get into a brand new episode, which would air next week now, we are going to give you probably our benchmark episode, which is the night that Shane Douglas threw down the NWA championship. Now, a little bit of background on the move. First, we are moving over here to get more exposure, to get a little bit more of a bigger audience reach. And the response that we got over last week when we released episode 18 was phenomenal. So we decided let's keep moving forward and get these episodes to you here right in your inbox on iTunes, how you subscribe to the two-man power trip of wrestling. So we thank you for that. So with your reward, you will get a previously broadcasted episode on August 28th. We released this of this past year where it was marking the 23rd anniversary of Shane Douglas and the infamous NWA title promo. So you'll hear a little bit of dated references just by a couple of weeks, but this was actually recorded on the physical anniversary of that event broadcasted the next day. So we want you to enjoy this one and we will be coming back with a double episode. Shane has already promised a double episode to kind of just like, let's clear the air here. Let's do it off off to a fresh start. When we put last week's episode up, we weren't sure where it was going to be posted. So it was a couple days late. Now we know our schedule. We know what we're going to be doing. So look for the triple threat podcast every week. Coming to you here if you subscribe to the two-man power trip of wrestling on iTunes. We thank you so much for joining us for that. We hope you enjoy this. And if you have any questions that you want Shane Douglas to answer, please send them into our email inbox. It is the triple threat pod at gmail.com. Again, it's the triple threat pod at gmail.com. Get involved. Send some questions in for the franchise. And let's have a little bit of fun. So stay tuned for our classic episode. This is, I say, the benchmark episode so far for this show. As we take a look back at the night, Shane Douglas threw down the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. He's outspoken. You will tell your kids and your grandkids and your great, great, grandkids. And he tells it. Like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world's heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised exclusively on the IRW Network.
around the bush today. As you know by now, my name is Chad. As always, I'm joined on the two-man power trip by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And today, on this very special 23rd anniversary recording on the actual anniversary date of the infamous NWA title tournament held in the ECW arena on August 27, 1994, is the main star of that show and the main star of our show, number one in your hearts, the one and only franchise, Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome to episode 12 and happy anniversary. <laughs> it's about the only kind of anniversaries I have anymore. It's uh, no significant second or other or partner in my life. I make sure to be politically correct here as the nation goes. Uh, so these are the only kind of anniversaries I have anymore, but it's uh in fact when John said uh you know mentioned last week when we were talking prior to recording episode eleven and he mentioned it, who knew? You know, I it's not like I keep a calendar in my house and saying, Hey, next year's the twenty fourth anniversary, you know, but a very cool part of my of my life and I'm proud to have been part of it. Well, I'm not gonna veer off topic here, but did you know that also yesterday, as you're recording this, this is on the actual twenty seventh of August, the anniversary, but yesterday, the twenty sixth of August 1986 was your infamous WWF Superstars taping where you uh, wrestled the Macho Man Randy Savage. So that was yesterday's uh, Shane Douglas anniversary. You know, that's, again, you know, don't follow, but I'm sure if you went through the calendar and went through like my career and said like, okay, like tomorrow he this happened or you know, I'm sure there's probably a lot of significant dates, but uh, you know, it's just when you've been you know as fortunate as I have been had this long of career and, you know, such great fans that you're following and everything, uh, knowledgeable fans. Uh, you know, I, I tend to think of professional wrestling fans as fans that are knowledgeable uh, about the sport. You know, you, you have a lot of those types of things in your career, and, you know, when you're doing them, you don't have any real idea of the uh, the weight that they carry until much later. And, you know, but just, again, I'm proud of have had a bunch of things in my career that have been noteworthy and, and been able to be part of it. Remember, ultimately, it, it was a decision by somebody above me, be it Bill uh, Watts, Dusty Rhodes, Paul Heyman, uh, Eric Bischoff, or somebody to say, you know, let's put Shane Douglas in this position and we think he can carry the ball. So, you know, it's it's uh, as much of a testament to them uh, as, you know, having the faith in me to do that. So pretty cool. Very cool. And that's a great way to uh, kind of segue into this episode. So now what we're going to do is we're going to take a walk through that night in a very, very, very meticulous breakdown that my co-host here, John Paz, put together. And before I kind of get it started, John, I just want to bring you in to kind of give us the overview of what led to how you put this together, what you were looking for, and kind of what we have to look forward to here in this uh, 23rd anniversary retrospective on the night Shane Douglas threw down the NWA championship, christening it, the ECW title. Yes, you know, it's interesting. I, I just always thought about it. You know, obviously you see it on YouTube, you see it on, you know, wherever you're going to see uh, your wrestling stuff, and you always see that infamous promo, one of the greatest promos of all time, and it really had a lasting impact on the business and obviously created ECW into what it was. But, you know, we keep going to that Icons Collector's Fest uh, that Rob Feinstein and Dreamer put together in Philly, and we keep saying, wow, you know, it keeps getting bigger and bigger, better and better, and things happen. Like, how did this little crappy bingo hall get to be, you know, somewhat of a famous arena? And how did this crappy little bingo hall become 
a staple of wrestling. Well, you keep thinking about it, and we're there with Shane looking at him, like, well, hey, this guy made this place famous. And you just keep thinking about that promo, and then, you know, you find the video on YouTube where you're just looking through your old tapes, like, well, it was uh, August 27th, 1994, and the years just keep going by, and boom, now we have the show with Shane, so it's perfect. We can do the title tournament, we could talk to Shane about it, and we could really kind of dissect it from, from a different view than no one has ever seen or heard from before. Yeah, it's, uh, and kudos to your research because, you know, it, it's the stuff that, you know, I, you know, again, when you're doing it, you're not sitting there each night and running a diary or a log and saying, hey, tonight I did this and tomorrow this happened. And, uh, you know, so for guys like you that have the uh, patience and the diligence to, to go back and research this stuff and, and pull it out, you know, once somebody mentions it to me, it cues, you know, the stories are all there in the brain somewhere. It cues the stories, but it's, you know, having that, 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 uh, painstaking research to go through it and, and, and to dissect it and to, to you know, throw those uh, prompts out, if you will, to pull them out of the brain. So they're there, and I'm sure your researcher that he spent the week on, on it will uh, stimulate a lot of them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had this thing in hand by about Tuesday or Wednesday because we weren't sure when we were going to be able to sync up because Shane is a road warrior. He's out on the road right now. So we uh, we had this early in the week and, of course, you know, we got submissions via our email address uh, at uh, our Gmail account, which is the triple threat pod at gmail.com, and we'll talk about that at the end. But not only that, it also prompted some amazing questions <laughs> for future episodes. So I think this episode really turned up the, the juices, so to speak, with the fans' perspective on how Great. they want to ask them. But let's go back. Let's check out the facts here. And the facts are this took place on August 27, 1994, it was at the ECW Arena in Philadelphia, and I have a few factoids I want to ask, but before I hit those, was it actually still called the ECW Arena at that point in 94? No, I was, I was, it's funny you asked that question, because I was thinking, I was thinking this as you were saying, you know, just prompting that. Uh, we, you know, sort of uh, in-house called it the ECW Arena, uh, but it was still uh, very much known as the... Uh, uh, what was the prior name? The uh, Viking oh, the, Hall. The Viking Hall. There you go. I was I was thinking Lost Battalion Hall, but I knew that was Queens. Uh, Viking Hall. Uh, everybody called it the Bingo Hall. You know, it was where they ran. In fact, when we first started there early in '93, '94, you know, we would dress in the back where they actually had the bingo machine. Now, if I'd have been smart, I would have put like some some water in some of those balls and gone out and got the right bingo card and, <laughs> and won every night. But, uh, you know, we, uh, shades of the, uh, the, the infamous Pennsylvania, you know, uh, uh, scandal where, you know, a local Pittsburgh weatherman who was in charge of it did that, waited the balls down and the infamous number six, six, six came up. But yeah, it was still the, uh, Viking hall and, uh, upstairs they, they would, uh, the mummers, uh, would, store their annual parade. Uh, the Mummers Parade is a huge thing in, in the Philadelphia area that they have once a year, and they have the elaborate costumes. And It was just you know, upstairs, rows and rows and rows of these elaborate costumes. And then there was another room where there was a, just tons, I guess, where the Philadelphia newspaper would store its overflow and, you know, just stacks and stacks of old newspapers. And a fire broke out there at one time, and thank God didn't destroy the, the, the uh, Viking hall or the ECW arena as it were, but it was not called the ECW arena officially at that time. Hey, right. Exactly. Yeah. The Viking hall was the venue uh, now known of course as the 2300 arena. We all love it as the ECW arena. 
And right. the event was sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance and Eastern Championship Wrestling. Highlights of the show appeared on the ECW Hardcore TV August 29th, 1994. So kind of a quick turnaround in terms of the standard of the day, because sometimes you'd be sitting on shows for a couple of weeks. This one was just a, uh, a few-day turnaround. Uh, the commentator, of course, for that was the great Joey Styles, who, known for doing solo work, also having many good tag team partners in the booth, one being Shane Douglas. And uh, the NWA title tournament was to crown a new champion after the title was vacated rather famously by a certain guy who we've talked about a lot as of late. But let's just talk about quickly the, the TV aspect of it. So highlights were played on TV at the time. So obviously a huge show condensed into hardcore TV and Joey Styles doing the commentary. Uh, what do you think about what Joey put into the show, not only as the commentator, but helping get that show to air in two days? I know it was a part of a, a great production team, but that was, if, if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a great turnaround for 1994 for two days from the 27th to the 29th to broadcast the show, and obviously Joey playing a huge part in all that. No doubt about it. And, you know, kudos to uh, Ron and Charlie, Ron Bozzi and Charlie uh, uh, Buffone. Uh, Ron, Ron Buffone and Charlie Brzezic, the chair shots of the years. Uh, they were fantastic. Keep in mind that ECW was, uh, you know, you, you really couldn't even call us a company. We were a bunch of guys that got together every couple weeks and, and recorded what turned out to be some pretty damn good television. Uh, but those guys and Paul, you know, who would oversee it and, and direct, uh, you know, the, uh, the actual putting together of the show. Uh, but Joey Styles brought uh, – sort of a, a, a new perspective. He was by and large unknown by the national audience uh, who you know, at that time knew Bob Cottle and Jim Ross and Lance Russell and, you know, all the, the, in, you know, all the famous names and you know, legendary names of broadcasting and wrestling. Uh, but Joey Styles on a national level was largely unknown. And I, I, what I vividly remember about Joey and this, even at the time stuck out to me like a sore thumb because I had never seen any, announcers do this in any company I'd ever been in uh, at that point. And, and since actually Joey would walk around the dressing room and like, say for instance, he'd come to me and Francine and say, Hey, you guys tonight have this match and, and they're going to be doing, you know, they're thinking of going this direction. And, you know, you know, where do you think you're going to take the match? And, and he would go around the dressing room and he would talk to every person, at least in the major angles. And like, I remember him sitting with Taz and uh, coming up with names uh, for moves, uh, again, same thing with Sabu, because, you know, these guys were doing stuff that had never been seen in, in wrestling before, many of the moves. And, you know, Joey and, and, and Taz, uh, I'm pretty sure, came up with the Kata Hajime. Um, I know that Joey came up with the triple jump moonsault. Uh, and he would work through, so and he would do the announcing, and I'd watch the playback of the show, and I'd, I'd hear him seamlessly just go through and, and slam this stuff. You know, it was amazing to me because it's such a breadth of knowledge of, of wrestling holds and moves and uh, psychology. Joey had a real knack of when he was talking about a, an angle of getting into the little nooks and crannies of the angles, which I think is so incredibly important to professional wrestling and sorely missing today is that it's not just an execution of moves. You know, everybody that graduates from a wrestling school knows how to do the moves. Uh, some may do them better than others, but everybody knows how to do a suplex and a body slam and an arm bar uh, an arm drag, et cetera. But it's, it's when to do them. It's, it's when to, and how do you build the audience to that point of the edge of their seat to when you finally hit that move, they explode out of their seat. That's the difference of executing a move 
and executing a storyline. And Joey was incredibly uh, prescient at that and, and professional at that. When he would, if you listen to his voice tracks, and the one thing about Joey that I also remember when I first started doing the commentary with him when I was off the elbow surgery is that Joey, you know, everybody you know, always say Shane Douglas is one take promo. Joey Styles was a one take uh, uh, voiceover. You know, rarely had to go back and say, hey, let me do that, that one again. Uh, incredibly rare for Joey to do that. Uh, Joey was and is, to me, one of the greatest professional wrestling announcers ever. And he also lent to ECW being solo for most of that time, even though he did have partners along the way, uh, a level of excitement to the show, you know, with the, oh, my God, and, you know, his voice, you know, inflections were, were incredibly well-timed. And I, I rank Joey Styles up there with the best in the history of the business. And I think he'll go down and be remembered as a big, big reason why ECW became what it became. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. And I, even somewhat of an understatement because he was the, the soundtrack of every single major ECW moment that we all know and love, we all remember. And obviously, Joey, uh, being solo and having partners, you know, we recognize him a lot as being the solo artist that he was. And just yeah. an absolute, um, you know, iconic sound because what I felt like he brought to the table as, a, as an audience viewer was that he was younger, you know, and he had that, mm-hmm. that vigor, he had that spice. And not to say anything against, you know, the likes of other uh, announcers, maybe more structured at the time by the corporate environment, but Joey related to the fans. Joey was talking to the fans like we wanted to be talked to. He was, you know, throwing out references of other companies. He was throwing out uh, pop culture references that we got. So that was cool about Joey Styles. So absolutely everything you said, 100% uh, on point about the great Joey Styles. So kind of looking forward to what we were going on that night. So I said about uh, the NWA championship. So the NWA and WCW, just they had a, uh, a falling out. And obviously at the time, the champion was WCW employee Ric Flair. And once they seceded from each other, the board of directors – uh, and WCW, you know, the NWA board of directors, it deteriorated to the point where it was time to secede. So WCW went their own way. They kept the uh, their big gold belt as the actual world championship. And the classic NWA title was brought back here for a title tournament that was proposed by a board of directors member, Dennis Carluzzo, who we are definitely going to uh, ask you a couple uh, questions here about Dennis Carluzzo. But Looking at the night itself, August 27th, what are you doing in terms of your bookings at that point? How are you getting booked for shows, and are you basically staying more in the Northeast at that point uh, with a, a show like this tournament coming up? Are you staying closer uh, to the proximity of Philadelphia still? Well, no, I, I was, you know, being out of Pittsburgh, I would, you know, travel, you know, within a five, six, seven-hour radius of Pittsburgh, and occasionally a flight to other parts of the country, but What's notable about that, guys, is at that time, uh, you know, I don't know the exact percentages, but I would say roughly estimating 75% of our income was still coming from outside bookings. So, you know, you have ECW every two or three weeks. Uh, about that, I think at that time it was about every three weeks. And, you know, so the rest of the month, the other three weekends, you'd be booked out in other places. And so very much reliant on outside bookings. I couldn't have survived on just my ECW pay alone at that time. Uh, or if I did, it would have been you know, a pretty skimpy existence. But, 
you know, we even at that time, there was no guarantee of, you know, the next ECW arena show, which was the lifeblood of ECW. There was no guarantee of the next phase. Uh, it was just, we did it day by day. And there was always an urgency in the dressing room. It, it wasn't an overt urgency. Like people weren't running around nervous and stressed out because we had to make it work. There was just a professionalism in the dressing room of when it was time for you to go on, uh, you know, everybody struck it. Everybody went out and, and, you know, nobody took somebody going out before them having a great match as being like in most places they'd come back and say, you know, damn it, Chad, why the hell did you go out there and have this good match? Now I got to work harder to make, get my match over. There was none of that in ECW. Uh, It was almost like it challenged each other. And, you know, sometimes you'd you'd outdo the guy before you or the the girl before you. And sometimes you wouldn't, but it was always that kind of a, you know, a a uh, self-imposed, sense of you know excelling you know if you will you know i'm, I'm going to go out and do my damnedest to top it but you know still we were very much reliant on outside bookings and you know for me like i said about 75 percent of my income was still coming from bookings that i was by and large driving to and occasionally flying to from out of pittsburgh so the independent scene in 1994 obviously a little bit different than what we might see today in some way shape or form uh, you know, the NWA still having a very heavy influence in the Northeast. Now, I mean, there are NWA affiliates in the Northeast, but now, you know, there, the NWA you see scattered more so, uh, I think, towards the, the middle part and maybe even towards the, the West Coast a little bit, but not as much as they used to be in the Northeast. But if you can, just kind of tell us some of the people you might see on the independent scene at that point, you know, the names, so to speak, the, you know, the WWF guys, because were you being billed? as WWF and WCW star Shane Douglas at that point? No, no, no. It was uh, uh, pretty much just Shane Douglas. The franchise hadn't yet. Well, uh, the franchise, if you're talking about the period leading up to the belt throwdown, came some short period of time before the NWA tournament. Uh, but when I was out on the you know, independence, you know, the, the, the franchise name, uh, as we approached the NWA convention, you know, I would have to make sure I told the promoter, hey, it's the franchise, Shane Douglas, not Shane the franchise, Douglas, or just the franchise, whatever. Uh, you know, but, no, there was there was no, uh, you know, there was no attempt. Like today when I go out, they'll, you know, they'll go out and mention my WCW, UWF affiliation, WWE affiliation, Intercontinental Champion, or whatever, uh, and obviously primarily ECW. But at that time, it was to, you know, go out from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Shane Douglas, or as we neared the, uh, you know, the, the time of the, uh, the NWA tournament, and Paul had come on board as the booker in the ECW, uh, the, the franchise. But I'd have to make it very clear, you know, you'd go to the ring, you know, a couple times early on, and they'd say, you know, you'd tell them, hey, don't forget the franchise. And the announcer would go out, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Shane, the franchise Douglas. Said, no, no, it's the franchise Shane Douglas. You know, it was very, very specific in the way we had to say it. Um, but, you know, so it was, uh, so I just want to put a little sidebar in here. You know, we've been talking about these statues. I don't want to digress too much, but, uh, you know, these statues being removed. And I mentioned about how we can't look through history, uh, through contemporary eyes. So through contemporary eyes, for somebody who's grown up watching the franchise, Shane Douglas, uh, it's hard to imagine a time when Shane Douglas wasn't known as the franchise, uh, you know, but we all look through through history, whatever the history may be, through our contemporary eyes. So it's hard to dissect and separate those two things. Uh, and I think this has some impact and some bearing on what we've been talking about with history, the statues, et cetera. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that, of course, you know, we could do another <laughs> episode of that because when we talked about all the statue removal and stuff, I mean, that it can it can really cross over into so many different uh, parts of things that we talk about. But you know, one guy who I don't know if he'll have a statue put up anywhere, and, and somebody who's going to have a lot of heavy influence on this show is Dennis Carluzzo. So it was Dennis Carluzzo yes. who's the one that proposed the tournament. And he reached out to Todd Gordon, Paul Heyman, of course, Todd Gordon being the uh, the financial backer and the man behind Eastern Championship Wrestling. And right. Dennis Carluzzo promote, proposed, let's have this tournament. So if you can, I know it's documented out there. You know, you've done uh, a couple great shoot interview series with Sean Oliver and Kayfabe Commentaries, and you talked about it a little bit. But what was your relationship like with Dennis Carluzzo leading into this tournament uh, and obviously it would change even more after the night was over, but what was your relationship status like with Dennis Carluzzo before that night? Yeah. Personally, I did not know uh, uh, him at the time. You know, it was like, you know, Dennis, I'd met, to the best of my recollection, I'd met Dennis one time before that when Eddie Gilbert was still booking uh, ECW. Uh, he had to run by the Renaissance Hotel near the Philadelphia airport to pick up a check or something from, from Dennis. And, uh, we pulled in and I went in with him and I, I saw, you know, Eddie go over and talk to him. That was the first time in, in, in my recollection that I even laid eyes on, uh, didn't know who he was. I'd never worked for him. I'd never been on a, uh, Dennis Corluzzo show. And, you know, so that, that being said, if I didn't know him, he obviously could not have known me other than just a name in the business. And, of course, being a part of the NWA and having a, a huge stranglehold in the New Jersey, Pennsylvania area, a lot of events, Central Jersey, South Jersey, that's who our main promoter was, John and I, uh, where we lived, was Dennis Carluzzo and all the NWA uh, New Jersey shows. So we were very familiar with the shows at the time, but that's interesting to know that you didn't really know him too much. What had you heard about his reputation as a promoter? Well, it wasn't so much what I heard. It was the things that I saw. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd go to the ECW arena, and the uh, fire marshal would show up and, you know, start counting heads. And we'd come out of the show, and there'd be flyers on all of our cars, you know, putting down ECW and saying that they should go to Corozo's show and, you know, that sort of thing. So he, would, he, he made it a very overt attempt at trying to undermine ECW initially, which made it all the more uh, ironic. You know, that he was willing to try to get, sit down and do business with us. Uh, you know, at that time, obviously, you know, our, our reputations hadn't yet preceded us as to the FTW attitude of, of, of ECW. Um, but the fact that he had tried so hard uh, to undermine ECW, you know, to me, it's just a, a cheap ass shot. You know, to call the, to call the uh, fire marshal and say, hey, you know, Ted and Paws are having a. Uh, show it to my Issa Gorman, so I think they're way over limit. You know, just trying to cut your legs off that way because you know you can't outdraw them with your product, and so you try to chop them off another way. And what, what he didn't understand at the time was all, all that took was Paul Heyman to go out and make one reference to that, whether it was on the show or in the ring, and every fan in that building became an ardent ECW soldier. You know, so it's like one of these things that, hey, you know, let's ban this song because it's it's got some controversial language in it. What's every every kid in the country wants to hear that song because they want to hear what's so controversial. You 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 add you you put sunshine on it and allow it to grow. You just make it bigger than it ever would be. And you know it's it's you know the forbidden fruit syndrome. <laughs> 
And that's exactly what Dennis Kaluza did. He tried so hard to undermine ECW, and thereby doing that, uh, added to the ECW legend early on. Right, because his shows were drawing very well. They were doing pretty pretty damn good if you, if you would look at the numbers uh, by the standards of today, and even by the numbers of, of today even. Uh, sure. Drawing for an independent show at that point, you know, it was a little different. Uh, you didn't have as many ways to promote. You had your uh, very fancy and quite often used uh, street poles that would have a stapled uh, multicolored poster on it that would say, NWA Wrestling or Eastern Championship Wrestling, and it would say the two big names at the top and then a couple little matches that you'd have to get out of your car and literally walk up to and be like, oh, look at that, you know, uh, the Hockey Talk Man's on this show or Jimmy Snooker's on this show. So that was the way we we would go to look at how things were promoted back then. But ECW still at that point at Eastern Championship Wrestling had that very loyal fan base that would grow and grow like a virus and grow and grow and obviously become – what it did become, so it's kind of funny that Dennis would try to team up with Todd Gordon and Paul Heyman to create this tournament, which they did, which Todd and Paul ended up getting together and having their own little uh, plan themselves. So the next question would be, uh, you referenced this, of course, on one of these kayfabe commentary scenes, but Dennis Carluzzo wanted you to sign a contract with him uh, for, yeah. I'm assuming, your duties as the NWA champion. So at what point did Shane Douglas know the finals and the creative for what the tournament was going to be that night? Well, I, I, I didn't make the, the final for creative being the decision that that was made on the spot. When I, the, the moment I say, here we go, dad, that's where I made my mind up. Um, it was literally at that moment. Uh, there was so much going on in my head with this. I remember at that time, even though, uh, you know, I'd grown up in what was, be considered a WWWF town like Pittsburgh and Bruno San Martino and Dominic Nucci being stalwarts with the old WWWF. Uh, I was by and large at that time an NWA fan. You know, I was, a, I was an NWA guy. I, I, I wasn't the guy that gravitated towards the sports entertainment side of it. I was the guy that gravitated towards the wrist lock, takedown, you know, drop toe holds, counters, uh, you know, uh, uh, storytelling, the, the, the wrestling that we all know and love. And to me, the NWA epitomized that. Um, you know, so for me, it, the, the idea of throwing this belt down very much became in my head, uh, you know, am I shitting on Harley Race's legacy, on Lou Fez's legacy, on all those names that I mentioned, Ricky Steamboat, Dusty Rose, Rick Flair, all those names that I mentioned, I certainly didn't want to do that. That wasn't my intention, but... At that time, you know, we've gone a little bit past, I think, and we've missed a point, is that the NWA was dead. You know, like I said in the, in the promo, you know, you know, died RIP seven years ago. Uh, it was dead, and, and the, the NWA was doing scant business anywhere it was doing business. In the few places, it was still remaining business in, in business. Uh, you know, so ECW, the only reason that was a – had any reason to want to do business with Todd Gordon and, and Paul Heyman. It wasn't because he saw the, the greater good for the wrestling fan. It was because he saw that if I can latch onto those guys, those guys are hot and you know, on the move, maybe I can you know, jumpstart the NWA. And that's where I think the whole thing came from. So from, uh, from my point of view, the, the idea of this contract that he, it, that he kept presenting to me, uh, it would have made me an, a talent exclusive to the NWA. So had I signed that and then gone out and thrown the belt down, 
he would have had a hell of a fun time screwing with me. Uh, you know, I couldn't possibly sign that contract, at least until I knew what I was going to do. And the only way I could sign that contract is if I came to the conclusion that I was going to keep the NWA belt. And, and you know, I, I, like I said, I couldn't make that decision and didn't make that decision until the moment I say, here we go, Dad. Uh, that's why I kept prolonging the promo. Um, A, fans were shouting in names to me from the audience. And, uh, you know, there's so many luminary names, uh, or names of luminary uh, backgrounds in the NWA title uh, lineage that, you know, I'd hit as many as I could off the top of my head. And, you know, they kept shouting in more. But that was giving me time to weigh this thing out. And in my head, as I'm, I'm doing that promo, my brain's going back and forth. Throw it down, don't throw it down. Throw it down, don't throw it down. And, uh, you know, again, hindsight being 2020 and the fact that we're looking through 2017 eyes, and we know that it became, uh, you know, an infamous promo and, and became a, an infamous period of, of, of ECW heritage. At that night, we didn't know it was going to become that. There was no guarantee. It could have been very, you know, who knows, half the crowd, if not all the crowd, might have said, shitting on the NWA, screw you guys, and got up and walked out. We, we, we didn't know. We didn't, have, being, not being a large corporation and not having millions or billions of dollars behind us, we, there was no way for us to take a pulse of the audience. It very much was a gamble for ECW to even think about doing this. And like I always tell the fans when they bring it up, thank God it worked. Uh, but at that time, there was no guarantee of that. And for somebody like me that was such a, an NWA fan and a fan of all those guys that I'd mentioned, I certainly didn't want to come across as a guy that was shitting on anybody's legacy. This was ECW's time to say, like my dad used to tell me as a kid, you, you can always walk with your feet on the ground like everybody else or soar with the Eagles. And I, the, the moment I say that promo, that's the first time in my life I understood what my dad was trying to tell me. And uh, he said, what, what's he talking about? Eagles and people walking and, you know, it just didn't, it never clicked. I never gave it much time to think about it. That moment, it completely coalesced in my head what he was trying to talk about. And this was ECW's time to come out and say, we're going our own way. We're doing something different. And we're going to take wrestling in a direction that has never been taken in this country before. Yeah, and for the most part, a lot of the guys that you mentioned were either still active, had just retired, were still having a presence uh, in wrestling uh, in 1994, obviously, if you cut that promo today, you know, some guys have passed away, some guys are long retired, fans might not remember them. Everybody that you mentioned was fresh in everyone's yeah. mind. So I think that's another part of what that promo uh, really just, it, it just kicked everybody in the balls, really, because you were hitting on so many great things. And I love to hear when you say that you kept debating it in your head. And we're, we're not going to jump ahead and talk about it, but I just, that's, I just love to hear you talk about that because it's so methodical on your part because you're such a thinking man's uh, individual, uh, whether we want to say wrestler or teacher. You're always one step ahead in the thinking department. But I, I guess the next thing would be is how did Paul and Todd Gordon approach you about the concept of uh, what was going to happen at the end of the night? What did they say to you that really got you uh, on board with the idea of going through with doing something like that? Well, the, the, the reason I always enjoyed working with Paul was uh, that he never came to me and said, this is what you're doing. You know, he would say, he would give me like a, a, an array of options and let me think them through because I think he valued what I brought to the table, uh, knowing that if I was going to go out and do a promo, I would, I would nail the promo. If I was going to go out and, 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 and you know, put a rule in, in, in an angle, I would portray that rule well. And early in the week, 
Paul called me. Uh, I believe it was conference call with Paul and Todd. And Paul said, I have an idea and laid it out. And you know, he said, you know, if we stay with the NWA, this is what we'll do. This is where the company will be going. And this is what we'll do. Uh, if we go solo, this is what will happen. And this is what we do, will do. Uh, he, he laid it out to me and he left it for me time to think. Now, honestly, again, in hindsight, being 2020, I think that Paul knew, you know, where my head was. Now, I, I, at least I think Paul would have gambled and thought, if I'm gamble on Shane Douglas throwing the belt down or not throwing it down, I'm pretty sure he will throw it down. Um, but he never during that week kept, you know, he, not, not one time in this lead up to the, to the tournament did Paul say, hey, remember how bad that company treated you? Or, you know, remember this incident or that? There was none of that. You know, he gave me the two options and let me think about them. And uh, I don't believe we spoke about it again that week. That was early in the week, Monday or Tuesday. And uh, I don't believe that either of them brought it up again until we got to the building. And when I got to the building that day, about 1 o'clock, which is my usual arrival time at the arena, uh, I don't recall either of them coming to me and saying, hey, have you made up your mind yet? Uh, There was none of that. You know, they, they, they by and large let me go to continue to let my wheels turn on it both ways. And, you know, it was, uh, it really was a, a, a day of dichotomies for me because, you know, as I was going through, like, I'd hit a point in the, you know, the, the afternoon, especially when Dennis Cordes kept throwing that contract in my face. I thought, fuck him. I'm going to throw that, that damn thing down. I'm sick and tired of this jackass. And then I'd go back, you know, my other, you know, go another way and get a pick with Dennis. And I'd think about, you know, the, the Harley races and the Luthezes and, you know, this, this is the way the entire day went. And, and it really was an, a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour thing because every time I turn a corner, there was Corluzo throwing that contract in my face again. Um, you know, so uh, Paul and Todd, the, the pleasure for me, as, you know, being one of the, 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 the linchpin names for the company, they never came to me and said, okay, this is what we need. We need you to go left and not right. Um, they, you know, left me to, to, to ponder it and come up with the way I wanted to go with it. And, and I think that's a big crux to what we, we talk about, at least what I talk about today with the business, is they had faith in me. Uh, I don't think uh, today the business has faith in their athletes because they say, uh, pause and Chad, you guys are going to go out and do this and, and read the teleprompter and you're going to say this and then you're going to do these moves. And at that point, John Cena is going to run in and do this. And it leaves nothing – for the creative art, uh, the creative talents that both of you bring to the table and your skill set. And uh, to me, that's, you know, whenever we talk about ECW, that to me was the thing that really made ECW. I'm sure if they did that with me, that they must have done it with Taz and certainly with Terry Funk and Sabu and, uh, you know, some of the younger guys, I'm sure like uh, Mikey Whipwreck or, or uh, Chetty would have been told, you know, this is what's going to happen. But, you know, Paul and Todd were very, very easy to work for because, you knew they had faith in you. They trusted you. And when you have somebody like that as your boss, it's really easy to go out and, and execute and, and to just be yourself. And that's one thing that I always admired about working for Paul and Todd. So you get there at 1 o'clock. Obviously, uh, it's August, so uh, I'm sure it might have been a hot, sticky day down in uh, Philadelphia. We should have pulled the weather report. That would have added to – uh, the ambiance, but if you see the sweat pouring off of you at the end of the night, I'm sure it might have been a little hot in the old uh, ECW arena. But what was the vibe Ooh. of <laughs> what, what was the vibe of the locker room? The vibe of the uh, the backstage area as you got there. 
as we said, it's a title tournament, so there's a lot of bodies. But what's kind yeah. of uh, the pace going on behind the, uh, the the curtain there in the backstage area? As I recall, it was very much run of the mill. It was a very average day. Um, you know, for most part, everybody was sitting around. We had a lot of faces in. Uh, you know, like uh, uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, but there were a lot of faces that came in just for the tournament, and so it was nice to see a lot of old friends that you hadn't seen. Uh, there was a lot of that going on, you know, uh, the camaraderie. But the ECW dressing room that night, as most nights in the ECW arena, uh, was you know you'd come back to the curtain, and the dressing room would give you a standing ovation, and in turn, later, you'd give somebody that. And it wasn't just a gratuitous thing. It wasn't just like, hey, let's all do this for every match. And, and, but when you go out and you would nail it, you know, you'd, you'd get that mutual respect from your peers. And, you know, I, I remember all – I love professional wrestling. So it was very easy for me. Uh, you know, the fans looking back from today can, can understand. I was watching it live as it was being recorded. And being such a wrestling fan, such a mark for the business – uh, to me, it was like sitting and watching great wrestling every time we recorded. You know, so we would sit at the monitor. I often remember in my head the vision I have of the ECW dressing room of, of remembering the ECW dressing room is of uh, the monitor on the table and everybody sitting around it like like marks on the edge of their seat, and, and we would pop in the back like we were watching a movie. Uh, you know, like when again the first time Sabu with the triple jump moon, so I jumped out of my chair. I, I mean, it was so damned exciting to see. And, uh, you know, that was, the, that was the typical ECW arena night. And I don't recall, uh, like, for instance, Dead Illegal. Uh, there was a lot of stress in the dressing room that night uh, because most of those people had never been on a pay-per-view. And, you know, live television, it was very, very stressful for a lot of them. Uh, Franny and uh, uh, Pitbull, uh, Anthony Durante, they were sweating bullets and, you know, they were so nervous. They were starting to make me nervous before we went out, even though this was one of the mill to me. I'd done this a million times. Uh, the, the tournament was not like that. The tournament was very much just another day, just another show. And by that time, ECW had found its footing, you know, so we knew what the flavor of the company was. And uh, unlike those early days where sometimes it was vanilla, sometimes it was chocolate, we were, you know, we're still trying to find that, that, that base core flavor for the company. By the time the NWA tournament came around, we very much had a, a, a feel for that flavor. And uh, to me, as I remember, it, it seemed to be just a very run-of-the-mill day in the dressing room. Well, the end of the day, obviously, would be a little bit different than the beginning of the day. And as the, you know, the event starts to roll, you know, you're there at 1 p.m., but as the event starts to roll, the event featured, obviously, the NWA title tournament. It was a tournament with eight men for the vacant NWA title. The title was actually vacant for, you know, for about a year or so. It was vacant for a while. Like you said, the NWA was pretty dead at this point, and obviously WCW had, had the NWA champion and flair. So, I mean, things – Things were weird, and obviously, like you said, with Carluzzo, it was he wanted it, he didn't want it, then he wanted it, and then he wanted you, basically, you know, uh, as his champion, trying to get his kind of contract. So, as we roll into the event, you got two Cold Scorpio, you got Benoit, you got nine one one, Doink the Clown, Dean Malenko, Nishimura, Shane Douglas, and the Tasmaniac. So, of course, you know, first we roll around the quarterfinals. Two Cold Scorpio beats Benoit. Great match. Uh, 9-1-1 defeats uh, Doink in a bit of a squash. Uh, Doink was doing a little bit of a a cool gimmick, uh, a little bit of a different gimmick. And Malenko beats uh, Nishimura. 
in a pretty good match. And then, of course, we come to the franchise Shane Douglas, the then Eastern heavyweight champion, defeats Tasmaniac in a good match. What are your memories of that first round match against the Tasmaniac? Uh, you know, it, Taz was still trying to find find who Taz would become, um, but still was very much a technician in the ring. And even in that early stage, it uh, was very easy for a character like the franchise to play off of because he was so explosive and, you know, could come out of no place and just hook you and throw you with one of those suplexes. Uh, it was easy. Like, I always, in my in my head, thought of spots as like a sentence with an exclamation point at the end. So you here, here's the sentence, and now here's the finish of the sentence, and pow. Um, you know, so how do we build to that? And Taz was easy to do that with because, like I said, he was so explosive and could come from no place with that and, and really get that pop from the crowd. Um, but, you know, you'd mentioned the weather earlier, uh, Chad, and the, the, the temperature in the building that night, uh, it was a typical Philadelphia August day and extremely hot and extremely humid. And then inside that arena, you know, with, you know, a thousand plus fans shoehorned in and the television lights and, you know, all that hot, moist air, it was just, uh, I remember each, and I'm sure it was because of the physicality of each match, but, you know, the, the Taz match I remember was as, you know, uh, you know, as hot as it was, it was a match. The second match was much more, uh, the weather played much more impact. The, the humidity was starting to get to you. And then by the time two cold and I went out there, it was, you know, I think for both of us, you know, we were running on empty. You know, it was, you know, you're physically drained, exhausted, and now you have to go out and put on hopefully the best match of the night and then cap it off with this huge decision. So, you know, it was uh, a lot of a lot of stress to it from that point of view. Um, but it didn't, that's me saying that today, looking back. I don't remember that night feeling that uh, or thinking about it. It was just, okay, I got got this first match to get through now i'll get the second match to get through and then i'll think about the two cold match when we get there um but you know you, something that popped in my head as you mentioned about doing you know if you th- if you think at that moment where ecw was heading and where we would, we would ultimately go that was a very easy shot for paul to take to tell the wrestling world this is what happens when sports entertainment comes across ecw gets choke slammed uh, it was such a symbolic representation of what ECW was going to become. And, uh, you know, the, the, clearly, you know, especially at that time, but forget the uh, born again, you know, uh, character that we, that, you know, that we tried to do later, which I think would have been phenomenal. Um, at that moment, you know, Point the Clown walked in the ECW arena, even though ECW hadn't yet become what it was going to become, the flavor had been found. And the fans in that building were addicts for the flavor. So when they saw Doink the Clown walk into this NWA tournament, it, it was an easy uh, spot to say that guy's the heel. And when 911 came out, you know, sort of the uh, the mascot for ECW, uh, everybody knew where it was going to go. Uh, there was there was uh, you know, no foregone conclusion about that match, but it was that was a huge statement early on in the tournament, uh, not just to the fans but to the wrestling world, what ECW was intending to do and what ECW was going to do. Uh, so again, with looking back, any social scientist could look back and say, well, right there, now that I know what ECW was about, that showed that Shane Douglas was going to throw the belt down later. In fact, there was no connection between my match and that match or my decision in that match. But that was clearly, in, in, in retrospect, 
a, a very obvious shot across the bow of professional wrestling. Now, as a fan, we always look and we kind of like these tournaments. They could be unpredictable or, you know, it's kind of cool having all those matches in one night. From a wrestler perspective, and especially with the weather playing a factor and it being so hot and the ECW ring yes, at sir. that point not really having any air conditioning, is that play a factor? Do, do the wrestlers themselves not particularly like the, the you know, the tournament style? Uh, no. The, 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 again, the ECW... Most of the guys in our dressing room were, you know, were inexperienced in, in the larger, uh, the larger industry, you know. So it's things like pay-per-view and tournaments. Um, but you know, the, a match is a match. It doesn't matter if you're in front of five people or five thousand, or you have one match tonight or five matches tonight. I mean, most of these guys did have experience of, you know, doing tapings for, uh, uh, you know, WWF or or uh, WCW, and so they knew, you know, getting to the building, you, you know, you might have two or three or four matches. You know, WWF used to do the four-hour tapings, the four tapings. And, you know, so I'm sure there was some experience that way. It just, again, it was a very run-of-the-mill day because of that. It, this was just, you know, if you got three matches, like some of us did, then if you got three matches, you have two matches, you have two matches. Uh, it was just go out and execute the professionalism that was WCW wrestling room. And then, obviously, with the uh, the semifinals, you got uh, two Gold Scorpio defeating nine one one. It was kind of an eh match. Uh, obviously, yeah. you know, you're keeping nine one one strong at that point. And then yeah. moving on to Shane Douglas defeats Dean Malenko in a pretty good match. What are your memories of wrestling, good old Dean Malenko? Well, Dean is you know just a constant professional, and you know, and you know they, they call him a man of a thousand holds, right? And that's legitimate. Uh, you know, it was uh, you know I was good at the things that I did but I didn't have the breadth of knowledge uh, that, that uh, Dean did. And, you know, Dean, uh, if I'm not, it was, it, it, see, again, my gets hazy to me. This, that was the first night that Malenko came in, correct? That I'm not sure. I think it was one of the first times that he had come in. I don't recall him being too much in ECW because obviously he was in Japan for a while and he was in WCW for a bit, but I think that might have been the first time I think this was kind of a special occasion. You're right. It might have been the first time he was in ECW. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not exactly. If they were there before that, it wasn't much before that. Uh, but you know, that's you know, I remember you know talking before the match, and you know, just uh, you know, there was no you know type of uh, attitude of I can't believe I could have gone loose to you or whatever. It was just hey, we're here to do a job, and we're here to spellbind the audience, and and. You know, boy, what what Malenko and and uh, uh, Guerrero and Benoit and the Luchadors and all those guys that would come later, what they brought to ECW was just like a shot of steroids to ECW. All of these things really ramped ECW up. And you know, in the early days, I look back and I think, uh, you know, we had a lot of like, like a Don Morocco or a Salvatore Belomo, uh, great guys, and, you know, names in the business. But they weren't, they really didn't fit where ECW was going. You know, it was a new direction. And, you know, no disrespect to any of those guys. Uh, you know, you'd see Paul, when Paul would get rid of one of those uh, names, he would then bring in a Dean Malenko or a Chris Benoit or a uh, Super Crazy or a Juventud Guerrero or Rey Mysterio or a Conan. Uh, you know, there was always this, this constant ramping up. And even though at the time a lot of these names were, you know, even though they might have been, you know, known from Japan or, you know, some of those, you know, Mexico, they they were really new faces to the American audience. And 
you know, that what the, the platform that ECW gave them and what they brought to that platform was so synergistic. Uh, I'm sure every wrestler walking into that building, once they got a feel for it and realizing there's nobody here micromanaging you, there's nobody here telling you which way to go, uh, there's nobody here telling you what to say, uh, that that freedom that all of us that had had the experience in the companies prior and then coming into ECW, I think just demonstrated what I've always been talking about for the last 20 years is that I can't micromanage, you know, even though I know you guys pretty well, I don't know exactly what your skill sets are, what you're proficient at, what you're not proficient at. Best way to find out is let you be you. And uh, if I see, you know, if I'm the promoter and I see, I bring you guys in as talents and I see you guys do something that I don't like, I may come to you and say, not so much of that, more of this. But, uh, you know, there's a creative freedom in that, that being allowed to do what you want to do, say what you want to say, be what you want to be, uh, that I think was the real uh, ingredient to ECW's success. There was no micromanagement. In fact, in times it was, it was infuriating, you know, because having the experience and background that I had coming in and, you know, you'd want to know where Paul would want you to take this, you know, you know, what do you want from this match? And Paul would, keep, would always give me early on this, uh, I'll get with you in a few minutes. Give me a few minutes. Uh, I'm not sure yet. I'll get back to you in a bit. And, you know, meanwhile, my match is 30 minutes away. It's 20 minutes away. It's 15 minutes away. It's 10 minutes away. And Paul's still giving me, let me get back to you. And, you know, as infuriating as it was, I think it was a method to Paul's madness. It just got to a point where I finally said, screw it. You know, fuck it. I'm going to do what I want to do, and you know that I. That's when I realized early on that you know I've got to put my thinking cap on. Where does Shane Douglas want to take this match? And you know, and, and coordinating with whoever I was working with, and doing the same thing. So I, I have no doubt it's the same thing for all the guys that I mentioned just a second ago. That getting there and being in this crappy little roach-infested bingo hall, that feeling the energy of that crowd, and being in that building, I always say it was like somebody plugging into a, you know, to a, you know, a 300 amp uh, power source, you know, it was just like, you know, just extremely electrify you walking in there and getting to feel that with that audience. And, you know, so I think that, you know, with ECW and those guys that ended up coming into that tournament, I'm sure first expression walking in must have been, what a shithole. And then they'd see the show and the chemistry of the audience and, you know, the energy in the building. And then it becomes a bit of your chomp, you know, it becomes you're chomping at the bit to get out there and get in the ring and get in front of these audiences. And, you know, Dean Malenko, you know, to, to bring us back to where you started the question, uh, as I remember, was very much that way. He was looking forward to having the match. He and I had never worked before uh, that match. And uh, he went out and delivered like Dean Malenko always did. Now, it's great when you look at some of the guys in the tournament like yourself and Tukov and Benoit and Malenko and Taz and Ishimura and stuff like that and obviously you know you throw in uh, Matt Bourne who was pretty proficient worker in his day very good worker 911 more of an ECW favorite but the fans like those guys more or did did they like the Salvatore Belomo Don Morocco Jimmy Snooker guys did they like the older guys or they more like these new guys that could go well, early on, you know, by you know when the Snookers and the Maracas and those guys, they would, you know, they'd get the reaction from the crowd, and there was a, obviously a respect that those guys had earned. But as they were jettisoned away and cut off, and you know, then a, a Rey Mysterio was brought in, or a you know Juventud Guerrero, or a Blanco Guerrero, uh, Benoit, 
you know, the crowd immediately went to them because these were guys at that time. Remember, they didn't. The social media wasn't. You know, for the younger listeners to the podcast, you know, we didn't have the instant streaming and and instant. So if you were, you know, in Alabama, we'll say, or California, you would read about us in the in the Meltzer Teller sheets, but you wouldn't uh, be able to just pick up your phone and pull up, hey, what happened in ECW Arena last night? Uh, you know, so it was very much a word of mouth thing. And the fans, I think, you know, getting to, to where we were that night of the tournament, you know, they're seeing, you know, Dean Malenko. Well, they hadn't probably seen him, but they had heard about him and all these matches he'd been having in Japan. And, you know, so there was definitely a, a mystique about them coming into the building. And, and the fans, obviously, as soon as they saw them perform, latched right onto them. It is great that you can get all these kind of guys that if you really follow the scene, it's like, wow, Scorpio, Shane, Benoit Malenko. It's like, wow, you got a good mix of guys in this tournament. Now, especially looking back, you look at that tournament, it's like, wow, you got eight pretty good names in there, especially a few of them stick out more than others. But then the Mm -hmm. finals happens to be Hugh versus two cold Scorpio, two two great workers, two of the best guys of that day. You end up winning winning with, of course, the uh, belly-to-belly suplex and a good match. What are your mm-hmm. memories uh, of just that match and working with Sco- uh, Two Cold Scorpio? Because you guys had some good chemistry. Yeah. Uh, Scorpio is always great to work with. Same thing as Taz, I said earlier. You know, he, he was able to hit that explosiveness from nowhere. And, you know, just as soon as you saw Scorpio take into the air, you knew that something exciting was coming. Uh, both of us were exhausted. Uh, we had very little time to talk before the match. And, uh, you know, I remember Tuchel being very professional and very gracious. You know, you know knowing you have to go out there in, the, in this – you know, I don't want to put more grandiosity on it than it deserves at that moment. You know, looking again, looking back, we know the, the, the history that took place that night. But that night, this was just a small show, an independent show, in a little building in Philadelphia. And, you know, none of us could have portended or, or impression enough to understand what it would become later. Um but, you know, I remember talking very, very little before the match. We both had to get uh, redressed and towed down and, you know, looking as fresh as we could to get ready for this next match. But, again, by this time, the building was around the 115, 118-degree mark. And, you know, it was like running the marathon and, you know, 20 minutes later saying, okay, you ready to do another one? You know, it was, uh, it was extremely uh, physical and trying that way. And uh, both of us, I think, were a little bit winded, and both of us were obviously tired and sucked dry because we'd already had two matches, both of us. As I remember Scorpio's matches were, were pretty physical early on, and uh, we had to then go out there, and, you know, and it couldn't just be a five, six, seven-minute thing. We had to go out and give a match that was worthy of an NWA tournament. So, you know, had we decided to stay with the NWA, or should I say had I decided to, to stay with the NWA, um, you know, we we had to deliver a match that was worthy of that of that lineage of those guys we'd mentioned earlier in the podcast. You know, so it, it was, I think, probably for me the most stressful match of the night because I have now I, I in the first two matches I didn't have to worry about making a decision. You know, the decision hadn't yet been made and there was a million miles away in my head. But now here we are, and within 15, 20 minutes I've got a pretty big decision to make. And you know, it, all during that match. That was weighing in the back of my head. You know, I couldn't just disassociate myself and say, well, I'll worry about that when the promo comes. Um, you know, there's, during the whole match, I'm thinking, you know, like, at times I'm, I'm you know, thinking, boy, this, you know, this would really help relaunch the NWA. And at other times I'm saying, boy, this would really set, set ECW on a trajectory. You know, so for me, there was a lot more mentally going on 
But uh, Scorpio, as as I always remember him from ECW, was extremely gracious, extremely professional, and worked his ass off out there. You know, it's it, you know when you when you know you're going out to deliver the short to get the short end of the stick handed to you, and you still go out there and deliver like a professional. To me, that's the the height, the, the apex of being a professional in this business. Um, and to do so with such graciousness as he did, I think just really said, you know, today it becomes commonplace. You know, I saw it last night, two guys wrestling afterwards. Hey, it was a great match, and they look forward to wrestling again. And the fans love it, right? The guys shake hands. The fans love it. Well, that was never seen in America before. You know, that that was a very new aspect in America. And when you see Scorpio come up to me after the match and shake my hand and says, hey, I want another shot at that, uh, you know, that was it, it never been seen before. And and I remember at, at that moment when he did it, it felt odd because I had never had it done to me before. And, you know, as a heel, how do I play off of it? Um, but, you know, Scorpio, I, I think Scorpio is one of the, you know, I don't want to undersell any of the other guys either, but all those guys in that tournament, especially uh, Taz and Malenko and Scorpio, uh, Nisha Moore, all of them, they really were, a part of that night and part of what made that night successful is a big part of that. So, you know, Scorpio going out there three times and then having to deliver the, the exclamation point at the end of that tournament, I, I think he did so as, as professionally and as well as anybody could have done it. Now, this is kind of a, not really a debated topic, but an interesting thing. Was there ever anything talked about with like Todd Gordon, yourself and Carluzzo that, after you win, they're going to start an NWA versus ECW angle. Was ever that anything like that brought up to you at all? I think there was a. It wasn't brought up to me like as an idea, as a uh, uh, an idea with any seriousness. It was just you know then uh, you know if, if you know at the end of the night you know because at that time especially when Corluzo was in the conversation, you know we couldn't tip our hand to him regardless of which way we went, and so. Uh, you know, any conversation around around him was always centered on. So then, you know, then we have to talk about after the the, the tournament. You know, like what's the next step? How do we rebuild the NWA from there? Uh, and you know, I always took any of those conversations at the building that Corluzzo was involved in as just being a part of the work. You know, because whether we stayed or didn't stay, uh, we couldn't expose to him. So anything that was being said in front or near Corluzzo about any future with the NWA was just sort of wink, wink, nod, nod. Now, obviously, uh, you presented the NWA world title. You beat Scorpio. You know, like you said, yeah, you kind of probably, quote, unquote, make a short acceptance speech before anything goes down. But then the tables kind of turn. You end up throwing down the belt. You pick up the ECW title instead. You proclaim, you know, to be the extreme championship wrestling heavyweight champion of the world. And, of course, you know, I'm skipping over one huge important thing here, and that is the the speech. You know, and it was yeah. so good, and it's so remembered, and and it's so you know, like it's just one of those promos where it's like one of the greatest promos of all time, and you always have to mention, like, man, that was great. Now, was that completely off the cuff, or did you know? I know you said you were kind of thinking, of, mulling it over, thinking of things, or was any of that in your head prior? Or was that just completely, you know, ad libbed? completely ad-libbed other than the names. Um, you know, you know, at, at this point I've had probably close to 60 minutes of matches in an extremely hot building and I didn't want to miss any of the names. That was, that was my big thing going out, you know, and, and, and 
when it finally came time to make the speech, I didn't want to go out there and say, hey, and you know, wrestler A, wrestler B, wrestler C, and forget somebody like a Harley Race or a Terry Funk or a Dory Funk or a Lou Fez. And there were so many names in that lineage, you know, so many legendary, iconic names in that lineage that I wanted to hit as many of them as I could. And, you know, I went out there and, they, you know, went blank. You know, I just was exhausted, mentally exhausted, as well as physically. And, you know, just started, when you see what it was, I, when I started to the names, I'm, I'm like hesitating. So I'm trying to think of like, who do I want to say next? And then the fans just individually start shouting out names, which I think lent so much credibility to it that it, you could tell Shane Douglas wasn't reading a teleprompter. And you could see that Shane Douglas clearly could not have, have forewritten these boards because the, the audience is yelling them to him, and, unless they had plants in the audience, which you know would have been impossible to do uh, for a company. Besides, there was you know for ECW there were so many things that needed to be done that you know I'm sure Vince could do that pretty easily with his resources. Uh, I'm sure WCW could have done that easily. ECW that would have been you know uh, quantum physics to ECW. And so the promo itself was just go out here and speak your heart. You know it's, it's you know having been such an NWA fan, uh, having been heartbroken when NWA died, um, and, you know, seeing the business become more of what it was becoming, sports entertainment, uh, you know, this for me was like a, a shout back and a beckoning back to professional wrestling. You know, so I say that, you know, the term is a sport, you know, accentuate the word sport of professional wrestling. Uh, that was straight off the top of that. Again, a little sidebar here. Um, I often say in, in, in seminars and when I'm talking to fans, this teleprompter idea that's, that's so in vogue or being used today, the, the promos that Shane Douglas had become known for would have never, ever happened or been possible if I just grew up reading a teleprompter. Um, the finding of that character and being able to portray the franchise character in such a believable and realistic way would have been impossible if Paul just had me reading a teleprompter all the time. Um, you know, the, not every promo I did in my life was, was, a, was an A, B, or even a C. You know, there were some real bad, bad, bad Fs in there. Um, the, the way I came to be able to do a promo like that night was, A, I was feeling it from the heart. B, I was reliving an experience that I had firsthand knowledge of and experience with. And C, I had 11, 12 years experience at that point in the business and, you know, the first time I ever did a live promo, I came back from the ring in Dallas Reunion Arena and had no idea I was going to promo. Because go back out to ringside, Jim Ross is going to interview. And I went out and delivered was probably one of the worst promos in the history of wrestling. Uh, had no idea what I was going to say. Had no idea what I should say. And I remember walking back that night and thinking to myself, I will never get caught with my pants down like that again. And it so pissed me off. So the point I'm making is the kids today that you're making read a teleprompter, uh, yep, they'll make mistakes along the way just like I did. And on the far side of that, after they've made those mistakes, nobody ever likes to go out and shit the bed. Uh, they'll be much better performers and seasoned performers and be able to deliver promos just like I did in, in, in that promo. The problem is they're not being given that opportunity and they're not being commissioned with that task. So why learn it? You know, I'll just go out and say what they want me to say because I don't have to worry about what I'm going to say. And thereby, I don't learn my character, and I can't go out there and realistically portray it. So, uh, and I could go on and on about what's wrong with the teleprompter, but that, in a nutshell, is what's wrong with it. The promo you saw that night has become so famous or infamous, as it were, uh, was a 
uh, culmination of all the experiences, all the promos I've done before that, good and bad, that allowed me to deliver that promo. And the kids today cannot do and will not learn because they don't have to. Now, this speech, it not only made that arena famous, because that speech really kind of set it off from there, it really made ECW, and kind of, you know, like it was basically, wow, these guys are revolutionaries, they don't follow, you know, quote-unquote, follow the script, they, they do their own thing, you know, and you were kind of the, the poster child for that. Do you kind of see yourself in that light as kind of making ECW what it was, kind of making the arena what it was? Well, all of us, yeah. I mean, but that was that was my personality before ECW. I never liked, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the more powerful dictating to the weaker. Um, I never liked a sense of unfairness. Um, and ECW to me was the, the 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 first attempt that I experienced in the wrestling business of finally being allowed to flip the middle finger to that and saying fuck all of that. Uh, you know, the wrestling is supposed to be so much more and so, supposed to be so much more exciting. And yet, you know, especially then, like, the, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the cartoon character that everything was coming in ECW and, and this this uh, idea or perception in the business that, you know, a good-looking, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy can't be a heel. He's got to be a baby face because everybody knows that blonde-haired, blue-eyed guys are just good guys. Uh, they, they can't possibly be assholes. And, you know, ECW broke the mold in that. You know, it, it was, uh, you know, uh, the idea of – Bill Watts had the idea of turning me heel prior to that, but didn't really ever do anything with it and never pursued it. Um, but before that, you know, to be a heel, you had to have a big beer gut and a mole on your chin and, you know, crazy eyeballs, and then, then you're going to be a heel because a guy like that can't possibly be a good guy. Um, you know, and ECW just brought a realism to that. You know, I think Paul's – you know, was a huge fan of reality television, and I remember him saying the opening to you know to ECW and the feel of the show. The reason he only had a two camera shoot, stationary and one handheld, was he wanted the show to feel like cops. You know, we've all seen the you know the cops when they're you know they're chasing chasing a perp and the, the cop car slams to a halt and the door opens and the camera jumps out and he's running and following and bouncing trying to follow up the action. There's a there's a real excitement in watching that, a sense of urgency. And, you know, Charlie Brzezzi, who was our handheld guy, did that in spades and gave the, the show, uh, again, without the resources to put on a, a slick, you know, pyrotechnics-filled show, uh, gave the show a real sense of realism and a real sense of urgency in the way that it was shot, edited, and produced. And, you know, once we got into that, like I mentioned the flavor of DCW earlier, that knowing that that's the way the show was going to be depicted, that allowed us to then direct our performances in the ring, knowing that it would be depicted that way on air. So, uh, you know, like they say, the horse, you know, uh, leads the cart, the cart follows the horse. Um, And that was very much the same way it was in ECW, you know, at least in my head. I I knew the way the show was going to be shot, edited, and then put down on tape. So this is probably the best way to portray this in the ring. Now, the speech itself, uh, let's just... uh jog your memory and just uh, kind of just say a couple lines here in the, in the tradition of Lou Fezzen's tradition of Jack Briscoe, the Briscoe brothers of Dory Funk Jr., Terry Funk, the man that will never die as the real nature boy, Buddy Rogers upstairs tonight from Harley races to the Barry Windhams to the Ric Flair's. I accept the heavyweight title. Wait a second. Wait a second. 
of Carrie Von Eric, of the fat man himself, Dusty Rhodes. This is it. This is it tonight, Dad. God, that's beautiful. And Rick Steamboat. And they can all kiss my ass. What is going through your head right at this point as you're about to say, you know, you're naming all these awesome guys and former NWA champions, and then you're about to throw it down. What is going through the franchise's head? Well, at, at that moment, like I said, when I, when I say the line, you know, here we go, Dad, um, was I looked over in Dennis Coluso's direction. He was sitting at the table, uh, uh, ring left, and uh, when I looked over in that direction, sitting at the ta- timekeeper table with uh, Todd Gordon and had the NWA belt uh, at that time handed to me, but he had just been handed for him. So I'm looking in his direction, and... You know, I it just beckoned back to me. Everything you know sort of coalesced in my head. You know, at this point in time, does ECW just become a subservient to a to a company that's dead, and try to resurrect that with a bunch of people that have a million different ideas of what direction to go, or do we, as this family, as this extreme family, this island of misfit toys, do we make this thing the most important thing? And uh, like I said, it just was the first time in my life that I understood what my dad was trying to say with what he taught me from the time I was a small kid. And to be honest, uh, when I saw Dennis Kaluza in my line of sight, uh, I immediately remembered him uh, on uh, Mike Tanay's radio show that Wednesday prior saying to any independent promoters out there thinking booking Shane Douglas, I wouldn't do that because Shane Douglas will take your money and screw and fuck you. And, again, I'm making 75% of my money on independence. So, to me, I took that as a direct shot at taking family, food out of my family's mouth and money out of my pocket. And I'm going to work for this guy. You know, and so at that moment, it all pops in my head, and this is the direction we're going to go. And so that pretty much then in my head wrote the rest of the promo, you know, what I had to say. Now, it's crazy that, you know, that, that Carluzzo would kind of – Bad-mouthing you knowing that, you know, he, the NWA tournament wasn't really in his hands or in his grasp. You think that right. he thought it was in his grasp so he could yes. say kind of whatever he wanted to get away with it? Yeah, I think that Dennis thought that he could use the uh, the momentum that ECW was gaining at that point and sort of uh, catapult himself in the more important position within the NWA. Uh, you know, the NWA was made up, and I can't, the names escape me right now, uh, but there were – a group of guys uh, from around the country that would have to vote on things. And it was a very slow-moving, slogging, by early 90s outdated uh, mode of, 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 of management to a wrestling company, you know, where Vince had, had shown the world how to be very sleek, one man making a decision, one man says yes or no, one man decides left or right, uh, one man decides up or down. It was a very sleek model of management and had left the rest of the wrestling world at that time in the dust. And, you know, clearly, you know, why would we at that point jump back into, in my mind, why would ECW want to jump back into what has been proven to be an outdated and ultimately a death-inducing management system, as opposed to saying with, you know, like in this case, you know, we knew Paul was making the decisions, one guy, even though Todd was involved in the decision-making, you know, ultimately it was one guy. You know, so for me, for all the reasons, you know, what Corluzzo had said about me on today's show, uh, what my father had taught me, you know, and, and being in the center of that arena. Had this been in just at any arena and any part of the country or world, 
and doing that, you know, I, I can't say which direction I would have gone, but being in that re- arena in front of those fans, those rabid, crazy ECW fans, and feeling that energy, uh, I knew the way the fans wanted me to go. And, you know, that was the easy thing. Um, you know, but all those things just sort of came together and coalesced at one point and made the decision for me. You know, this, this is the way we have to go, and it's the way we're going to go. And as that promo continues, because as you, you know, you make it all kiss my ass, throw down the title, and then, you know, you get the ECW title, because I am not the man who accepts the torch to be handed down to me from an organization that died. R.I.P. seven years ago, the franchise, Shane Douglas, is the man who ignites the new flame of the sport of professional wrestling. Tonight before God and my father's and witness, I declare the franchise as the new ECW heavyweight champion of the world. We set out to change the face of professional wrestling. So tonight, let the new era begin, the era of the sport of professional wrestling, the era of the franchise, the era of ECW. Can you believe that basically you were setting forth this new era? You were the revolution. Yeah, there were some other guys obviously involved too, but can you believe that all the faith and everything, Heyman and Gordon, everything was kind of put on your back? Was that a lot of pressure? No, it was exciting. It was exhilarating. Um, you know, I think it was, for me, it, it was the moment that I, you know, be, you know, became a, a main eventer in the, in the business. You know, I've been with Steamboat before that, but still very much felt like the secondary uh, member of that tag team, but learned a ton in that position. Um, you know, in ECW, they put the belt on me and, you know, it was like I was taking my baby steps, but the, the, uh, NWA title tournament was where the franchise became a full fledged main eventer. And I knew that. You know, there was a lot of gamble in it. Even at that point, you know, this could fail, but it wasn't. It's going to fail. It's going to fail with us. We're, we're going to go down swinging. You know, we're, we're going to give it every bit of attempt. But from the other point of view, like I've mentioned, the ECW professional uh, attitude in the locker room, you know, for me, the exhilarating part was to be the mouthpiece for that. You know, there, there were so many special talents and athletes and people in the dressing room that to be able to be the guy that goes out and say, and talks for that in a night-to-night basis. Um, you know, Mark Madden is now a big, uh, uh, you know, one of the top uh, radio commentators in Pittsburgh, does a great job, highly rated in Pittsburgh. And, you know, as I listen to him, it's fantastic because all he's doing is he's playing heel. And, you know, if everybody says Ben Roethlisberger had a great game yesterday, he just said he thought Ben Roethlisberger sucked and pisses everybody in Pittsburgh off. It's so easy to be a heel when you have something great to play off of. And the ECW had a near unlimited dressing room to play off of. And so exhilarating because I get to be the mouthpiece for all of that. Yeah, you mentioned Mark Madden, obviously. You know, we just had him on our show a few weeks back. Uh, So that's Mm -hmm. kind of a uh, – I know you've mentioned him before, another Pittsburgh guy, but you mentioned Mike Tenay in that, and Mike Tenay having a nationally syndicated wrestling radio show, which, if you were lucky to have that in your market, you would get, not only you could get Mike Tenay, but a good friend of ours, uh, Rich Man Cuso, as well as Jody McDonald in New York had a show for a while, and then you'd yep. hear your Meltzers in some spots, or you'd hear Wade Keller as part of shows, and uh, I forget the guy, uh, maybe you know, the guy out of Missouri that had one, I just his name is not on the tip of my tongue, uh, but Tanae was obviously a big one, and Tanae would parlay that into a pretty good uh, professional wrestling career. But talk about the role that those guys had at that point in having those shows, because they weren't every, you know, in every major market, but they still had a pretty good ear 
on a good fan base for the places that they, you know, could be heard. Well, they, all of them, you know, the, the dirt seats include what we you know, colloquially call the dirt seats in the business. Uh, the Tanae shows and those syndicated shows that, that reach broad audiences. Uh, you know, Bob Ryder had, you know, one of the first uh, online uh, uh, websites for, uh, in fact, he used to do live from the ECW Arena shows. He would type out the matches that they were happening. You know, that was the best streaming we had at the time. And you had to have, you know, obviously internet and, you know, all of that. But, you know, it was, it was as, as the technology was coming to be what we know it to be today, all of that, the radio was still a huge part of it. Uh, there were still an awful lot of people that were, that, oh, my God, still read. And, you know, so there was a lot of ways of getting information out there. The key for us was how do we manipulate that to get our story out? How do we manipulate the, you know, all of those different outlets to make them believe that, say, Shane Douglas and Francine are really an item, um, uh, which we weren't. We were friends and professional uh, counterparts. Uh, but, you know, there was never any kind of relationship between us beyond that. Uh, still the world and, and the dressing room believed it. You know, Taz and, and, and uh, 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 Perry Saturn confronted me one day and called me a fucking hypocrite because I always talked about how much I loved my wife and then every weekend was coming out here and being with Francine. Uh, you know, we were there was such a, an in-house sense of protecting what ECW was. Uh, and, you know, to this day, I never understand why somebody calls the dirt sheets or anybody and or any website and says, Hey, you know, this coming Saturday, this is what's going to happen. Uh, they're making money off it. You're not, and you're undercutting your own angle. So thereby undercutting your own money. I just been, never understood the, 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 the uh, concept of doing that. But, you know, Paul, uh, I, uh, you know, we now know, and I was pretty sure at the time maintained a, a pretty close relationship with the Melchers and the Kellers and, you know, uh, a lot of the guys that were, had the radio shows because that was his way of planting seeds and, you know, giving just enough to, to, to appear legitimate and and uh, and then being able to manipulate and pull the rug out from under. Um, but that, to me, is what makes wrestling wrestling. You know, it's it's when I go to see a movie, I don't want to know at the end of the movie that Luke Skywalker is going to defeat Darth Vader. You know, I want to go through that movie and the whole time not sure if the boogeyman is going to jump out behind the next shadow or door. Um, when you know beforehand, it takes all the excitement out of it. And I often use magic. You know, I'm a big mark for magic also. And I watch Chris Angel. I'm just spellbound. You know, I, I know he's not really walking through walls or disappearing or doing the magic that he's doing. No such thing as magic. But how does he do it? And there's a part of me that wants to know. And then there's a big part of me that doesn't want to know because the next time I see the trick, it's not special. Um you know, today we often hear this term, and, and Jim Cornette and I go round and round about this, and I respect Jim, and he has his opinion, and I have mine, where he says we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, meaning the fans know the business is a work, and so there's no way you can get them to the edge of their seat anymore. And I, I, I couldn't disagree with that more because I knew when I was watching Halloween as a young man in a darkened theater that nobody was really dying on the screen, but why did I still jump out of my seat every time the, the boogeyman jumped out with a, with a big machete? Uh, because I allowed myself to, to, to go there the, the, to, to suspend disbelief and allow myself to, to buy into that movie. Wrestling fans did the same thing. It's we flogged them over the head with, it's a work, it's a work, it's a work, it's a work. And then can't figure out why we can't get to the edge of your seat. It's because we're beating you over the head with it. It's a work. Don't call it a shoot. Don't call it a work. Go out there and display the believability and the realism of it and allow the fans to suspend disbelief, and they will. But, 
you know, it's, uh, uh, I think this is just where the business has gone. And at that time we were using all those outlets, the Tanae show, all the syndicated radio shows, the dirt sheets, uh, the internet, in every way we could to try to get this information out. But Paul, again, back to using Francine, uh, you know, Paul made it very clear to both of us that we were to never reveal that there wasn't really something going on. In fact, Francine stayed in the room with me when we'd have a hotel room. Uh, So the only person that knew that there was no relationship, you know, between us beyond professional was Damian Theron, who was the head of merchandising at ECW and uh, stayed in the room with us as well. And, uh, you know, it was just how we did ECW. That's part of the, you know, you know, in the overall scheme of the cosmos, is it important that the world believe that Francine and I are an item? No. But in the scheme of ECW and professional wrestling, it's ultimately, it's of paramount importance uh, for, for all the reasons they see Franny jumping into my matches and, you know, diverting attention and whatnot. Uh, present it as believable, and the fans will follow it as believable. We believed it, all right. We've talked about that in past episodes. We definitely uh, bought it hook, line, and sinker. And uh, John and I, just off the air, were talking about uh, the the infamous uh, Rob Feinstein shooter interview in the pool, and that one being a little like, how did you get away with doing that back then? I mean, that is like uh, that is crazy to uh, to look back at that. But that's yeah, again, another story for another day. But just kind of staying with the dirt sheet theme. Do you think the dirt sheets knew about anything that was going on that night? Did anybody, you think, tip somebody off a little nudge? Hey, you want to stay tuned to the end of the night? Hey, there's going to be something big going on. Do you think that Todd or Paul may have, you know, as we've talked about leaks, leaked that to anybody at some point? I I never saw or heard of anything like that. I'd, I'd be surprised if there was. Um you know, it, my guess is if Meltzer or Keller, who were the two big seats at that time, would have known, they would have said, you know, something along the lines of, hey, there's you know, supposed to be something controversial or whatever. Um, to my knowledge, I, 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 I wasn't aware of anything like that. I've never heard anything like that. Uh, but, you know, you'd have to ask Paul and Todd that more directly. I, I certainly did nothing. Because, again, I didn't make my mind up until just for a second I'm, I'm delivering the speech. And so if I didn't know, uh, there's no way they could have known unless they, unless they have a crystal ball that I'm unaware of. You never know. Yeah. You just, you, you never know. Could have maybe been something that was so hush hush that that person still may never reveal it. You know, you know, that, that could go down, but we've all heard about the ECW moles and, and things that happened in the later sure. years of ECW, you know, we've, we've heard about that. I'm sure we'll cover that at some point to some of that questioning. But who was the first guy that you saw as you came through the curtain? And what would their reaction have been? Would it be a handshake? Would it be a middle finger? You know, who's the first guy that you kind of lock eyes with when going back through the curtain? I don't remember the first guy, but I remember the dressing room. Because uh, we, we had the monitor right inside. The, there were two curtains, uh, you know, about a 10, 15-foot span between them pitch black between them, by the way, and then the second curtain that went into the dressing room, and we had a table right there to the right as you walked in that had the monitor on it, and as I walked in, the dressing room was, you know, all standing there waiting, and there was like a sort of slow, like, dissolve from from disbelief to awe to then applause. Uh, I think it was sort of, you know, there were, I'm sure there was a lot of mixed emotions in the dressing room, you know, not sure of what the hell I just did. Um... 
you know, and then Paul very quickly jumped in. You know, Paul was the first one I interacted with. Paul came over and, you know, was like hustling me through because he didn't want me to get to have Corluzo get any, you know, mo- you know, to get me off to, his, to, him, to himself. And, uh, you know, Corluzo came in steaming mad, as you can imagine. And Paul very quickly, I had no idea which way Paul was going to go with it. I didn't, I, my thought would have been Paul just going to fuck off and he's trying to fuck us now. You've got your, you've got your receipt. Uh, but instead, Paul very quickly had Charlie with the handheld camera and said, oh, we got to, you know, it's all an angle. We got to shoot a promo with you. And he had Corluzo shoot a promo saying that he didn't care what just happened. Shane Douglas is the NWA champion. And, you know, he was going to meet with the board of directors and this and that and the other thing and all the rest of it. And, uh, you know, and, you know, as I recall, it was as he was hustling out the door. You know, like Paul was getting him out the door that way. Uh, but there was, you know, I think once it settled into the dressing room, everybody realized. Uh, I, I remember Taz coming up and saying, what a ballsy thing to do, you know, and, uh, or gutsy, I forget which one he used, but, something, you know, but Taz probably ballsy. Um, uh, you know, but there was a lot of that in the dressing room. You know, there was very seldom second guessing. I, I don't recall, if any, times anybody coming back and saying, I can't believe we're going this direction. You know, why the fuck did you do that? You know, it was just the, the family and everybody was on board. And it would take a while for Corluzzo and Heyman to not even try to bury the hatchet. I know Jim Cornette has an infamous story about how he was kind of broached as the, uh, almost like he was going to be the intermediary between these two, just patching things up for the good of, uh, you know, all that was sacred in the business. But I don't think it necessarily happened uh, before Dennis Carluzzo would pass away uh, a while ago now. I mean, it's, he's been gone for, for quite a while. But uh, what was the aftermath, let's just say August 28th, 1994. Are you getting phone calls from people who are starting to hear about it? Uh, are the you know the kayfabe journalists calling you? Are the real journalists calling you? What's the response outside of Philadelphia on August 28, 1994? There there was quite a few requests for interviews. Um, uh, I can't recall which ones I did and didn't do. Uh, I, I do remember in very short order, uh, if not the next day, within the next few days. Uh, I started calling uh, the people I you know, like Ricky Steamboat and, and uh, Terry Funk and uh, the guys that I knew, and and to, to let them know this was nothing against their legacy. Uh, this was a, an ECW angle. To, it was all about building ECW. And uh, you know, Terry Funk had said something to me like, uh, you know, "I wonder what the hell you were doing," but you know, I get it. Um, you know, go along those lines and. I just didn't want any of those guys to think that I was showing them any disrespect because there was none intended and, and, and none meant. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure that they knew that. And, and I asked them to spread that around to the people that I didn't have phone numbers for or whatever to let them, to, to let them all know that. Now, how about a guy like uh, the chairman, Vince McMahon? Does he, do you know if he had caught wind of it? Was, was he looking at Shane Douglas in 1994 uh, before you would go back in 1995, but immediately afterwards, is there any response from any of the two big companies to try to woo you back to the, uh, no. the quote-unquote, the big two? No. Um, you know, keep in mind at that time, I was on my promos, on my typical in-house promo, I was scathing to both companies uh, you know, for obvious reasons. And uh, there was... Uh, 
no. The next time I got in for any kind of contact with the big companies would be the next year. Um, but no, there was none of that. But there's no. I have no doubt that Paul, that Vince heard about it very quickly. Uh, if not from Paul himself, you know, he has uh, several people that you know scan the uh, the business and keep their ear to the ground and and report back to them immediately. So I'm, I have no doubt that that Vince McMahon was well aware of it by the very next day. Now, so many different like factors with just so many the different of the the major players or the, or the key players here. Now with Carluzzo and after the fact, did he try to come after you in any way? Obviously, he made some disparaging remarks about you saying, oh, you're a disgrace to the NWA title. He's going to strip you the title. He's going to strip you the ECW title, which, you know, he really couldn't do any of that. But did he ever come after you at all? No. No, there was never any contact between us after that. Um, like I said, I, I, I had never spoken to Dennis personally prior to it, and I never spoke to him personally after uh, the only time I ever spoke personally to, to Dennis Colusa was at the arena that day. Hmm. Looking back at this, do you consider this, if not, you know, if not the defining moment, one of your defining moments? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this was, like I said a second ago, this is where Shane Douglas became a real main eventer. Um, and, and it was a culmination of all I'd learned, you know, Again, looking back through my 2017 eyes, I, I can look back and see my career as on bookends and seeing that between those bookends, uh, it wasn't just coincidence or happenstance that I broke in <coughs> and trained with Dominic Danucci uh, with uh, a lot of input from Bruno San Martino, uh, got my break in the road under Bill Watts and worked with guys like Pez Watley and uh, Terry Taylor and Eddie Gilbert and, and Dick uh, Slater, Dick Murdoch on a night-to-night basis. And then from there, uh, uh, get put with uh, Magnum in the uh, NWA uh, and, and learn what I learned from him and under Dusty Rhodes, uh, then paired with uh, Ricky Steamboat. Uh, then coming to ECW, my first angle was with Terry Funk, one of the greatest heels in the history of the business. In other words, I was primed and pruned to be what I became. Uh, I learned from the best. I had the opportunity to work with the best. And, you know, if Shane Douglas hadn't at some point in his career demonstrated that I'd learned from all that, then shame on me. Uh, I would look pretty, pretty much like a fool. And I hope in some small way that, uh, that throughout my career that all those experiences that I gained over the course of my early career and the people that I worked with and learned from shone through with the franchise character. Well, you know, technically speaking, you are a former NWA World Heavyweight Champion, but do you think that you helped further, like, you know, cement that the NWA was dead, or do you really think in that year prior where there was really no NWA champion, would you really consider the NWA dead before this even started? Yeah, it was dead before it started. They were trying to use ECW to jumpstart it. Had had ECW not been in existence, there would have never been an NWA tournament, and if there did, it would have been in some dusty room, uh, probably worse than the ECW arena. God knows where and what back hole, backwater town in America, and you know would have had you know a couple hundred people at it, and it would have been a, a, just a little footnote in, in, in the wrestling history. Uh, had we stayed with the NWA, it, 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 I doubt highly that would have that it would have resurrected the NWA. From uh, among many reasons, what I mentioned earlier about the board of directors and you know needing to get like a, a a whole board of guys to agree whether we go left or right or we pick our nose or we pick our ass. Uh, 
you know, the wrestling business, as Vince had proven at that point definitively, has to be, you know, in the new, you know, uh, XY style of management. And, you know, the ECW did that, albeit on a, on a minuscule level compared to WCW or WWF. But, uh, you know, the NWA was dead. It died, like I said, the promo seven years before that. And we've seen how many numerous attempts since to resurrect it. You know, we hear rumors now that uh, Billy Corgan is spending, you know, a shitload of money for a name that's been dead for how long. Uh, you know, it's just the same thing with ECW. As much as ECW, and I don't mean this to be in any way backhanded uh, to ECW, but it is just a statement. Uh, ECW died, you know, you know, what, 17, 18 years ago. Uh, you can't resurrect it. You know, you can't relive history. And, you know, so attempts to try to resurrect it would be foolhardy. If you try to come out and say, we're going to bring out the new ECW, as we saw with Vince, not a chance the hell it's going to succeed. Um, and even if it was, you know, technically better, like I said at the time, if they go out on a show that's better than ECW, the legend of ECW has grown so large over the years uh, that the fans that remember the original ECW would say, uh, it's nothing like it. You know, so... You know, some things are better left as history and to, to be remain to be enjoyed as they were. Um, and the NWA, I think, was part of that. You know, the NWA had, an, had a glorious history and, and lineage to that title, uh, the most vaunted title in the history of professional wrestling in my book. But uh, it, it had died seven years before that. Uh, if we would have tried to resurrect it that night, it would have been all in vain. Uh, we'd have wasted energy on that and, and not succeeded. Uh, or go the direction we did and, and change wrestling for that seven-year period. Now, that was really the birth of extreme championship wrestling right then and there. And obviously, a few days later, Todd Gordon would officially say, yeah, we're, we're changing the name. We're, you know, we're extreme championship wrestling. Did you realize then that you were kind of sparking the revolution? Did you realize then what ECW would become? Or are you just kind of just doing a run-of-the-mill kind of just, hey, this is my job. We're going to move forward. Uh, it wasn't run of the mill. I mean, I, I knew we were taking a swing for the fences, and you know, when you do that, you know, most times you strike out. Uh, but in that rare chance that you nail it, um, you know, I knew that we were taking a swing uh, for the fences and had an opportunity to really do something special. But at that moment, as a microcosm in time, all we could do is, is hope it happened, cross our fingers. Um, but the one thing, looking back and I'm pretty sure I must have felt then, was that we had a pretty special dressing room. Uh, you know, we didn't have any huge name stars in the dressing room at that point. We were all uh, second-tier names or third-tier names, but we'd all seen what everybody, what, what a Sabu could do, what a Taz could do, what the Eliminators could do, what the Pitbulls could do, uh, what Sandman could do. Uh, we, You know, you could feel it at the time, you know, and even though at that, at that moment in time we didn't feel the history of it, uh, in hindsight, looking back, we certainly were, at least I was certainly aware of the potential of it. And for me, it was special then and looking back today with the hindsight of 2020, knowing that it did work and that it did achieve a lot of what it was intended to achieve. Uh, I think that, you know, as, as much as it would have seemed like a, a gamble, uh, you know, a pretty safe gamble if, you know, you're going in with 50-50 odds. And, you know, to me, we had at least 50-50 odds, if not much better. 
You were definitely sending a message to the wrestling world with that promo. You were the absolute, to me, the perfect guy to kind of cut that promo. And, you know, the passion was there. Obviously, you're a great guy on a stick. But where does all that passion come from? I mean, is it the love of the sport, or, or is it something more of that at that point you're like, man, this is a revolution? Like, where where do you kind of get all that? That You know, you could tell you were very passionate at that point. Well, I'm, I'm passionate about the things I'm passionate about. You know, if you, I love to read. I love to read historical uh, uh, books. I love to read conspiracy books. I love to read things that have historical aspect to them. If you ask me to sit down and read a Harlequin romance book, <laughs> the first page will put me to sleep. Uh, I'm very passionate about those handful of things that I'm passionate about. And professional wrestling happens to be one of those things. I've been a fan of wrestling since at least four years old that I can remember the earliest recollection I have of watching uh, studio wrestling and, you know, growing up and watching the business. Uh, like I often said about professional wrestling, uh, JP, is that, uh, you know, wrestling catches red-blooded American boys at a young age, and we remain fans, uh, at least in the traditional model, throughout life. I can watch great professional wrestling today, 24 hours a day, uh, I'm extraordinarily passionate about it. And I, and I think a big part of that comes from at least being able to deliver the promos is the fact that I have an extensive educational background, you know, political science, management, uh, teaching, uh, med school. Uh, you know, so I've got this, this very liberal arts education background. And, you know, it's, you know, we're all a combination of what came before us as far as in our life, you know, we're all uh, just a vast conglomeration of our experiences. And in my experiences in the wrestling business of all those names that I mentioned earlier, uh, those were things that I learned, you know, everybody that, you know, Dominic Danucci, Bruno Sammartino, extraordinarily passionate about wrestling. Uh, uh, Magnum, passionate. Bill Watts, uber passionate. Dusty Rhodes, uber passionate about wrestling. Uh, and I, I worked and learned from these guys. You know, the names that the, that the wrestling fans read in the history books are the guys that I learned from firsthand. I didn't read about it and, and learn by reading a book by this guy or that guy. I learned by working with them, under them, and with them uh, in the ring. So, you know, it, it, it's all of those things come together that, you know, the, uh, put a little bit of this ingredient, a little bit of that ingredient, and you get a guy that's really passionate about professional wrestling and, and articulate enough to go out and deliver that promo uh, you know, I don't think it was happenstance that Paul put me in that position and, and not somebody else that may not have been able to live with that promo. The lasting impact, not only that night, the promo, the title belt, ECW, and you kind of being at the center of it all, kind of the, the igniting force behind it all. Did that promo, did that night really shape and mold the franchise character? It was like, was it that night you're like, yes, this is the franchise character, rebellious, uh, not going to take bullshit from anybody. Going to throw down the title if need be. You know, say what's on my mind. Yeah, that's you know, I have to say about you know, everybody has a franchise character in them. Everybody wants to be able to tell the boss to go fuck themselves. Um, the franchise just never learned that linchpin called tact. You know, the, the franchise <laughs> if it pops into his head, he says it, and you know what an uninhibited feeling. You know, to be able to go out and say, "You sit in the front row. You don't like me. Well, this is what I think of you." And said, so I said, well, I can't say anything to him, you know, because Vince doesn't like that. Uh, I'll just speak to the teleprompter. Um, there's, a, there's an organic uh, grassroots feel to that. You know, when, you know if, if I go out and interact with a particular person in the audience and, and just start to really hammer home on them. You know, everybody, more so today than I think even then, but even then, 
fans, nobody like, you know, somebody picking on somebody, you know, any particular person and shaming them for whatever, you know, being fat or being ugly or whatever. Uh, and so the franchise coming out and saying those things, or and I'm using those as just general examples, obviously, um, you know, that, that, that freedom from the franchise perspective was so liberating that, you know, if, if, if between my brain and my mouth, there was no, no stop sign. You know, so that, that's a very liberating feeling. And, you know, every one of us at some point in our life wanted to t- tell somebody to go fuck themselves. And yet, if you say that, you're going to get fired or you're going to get in trouble in school or you're going to get grounded by your parents or, or, or. Well, the franchise just broke through that. And uh, from a character perspective, it was extraordinarily fun to play that character. Uh, but that, that that really was, you know, the, the, uh, the inner side of, of Troy Martin. You know, that in life, Troy Martin can't tell his boss to go fuck himself, and Troy Martin can't tell his teacher to go fuck himself, and Troy Martin certainly wouldn't tell his parents to do that because they'd beat the hell out of him and ground him forever. Uh, the franchise just was uninhibited and free to say whatever he wanted to say, and it was extremely uh, fun to play and liberating because, it, you know, the fact that you'd go out and say just about anything you want to say and, you know, it just allowed that character to flow. And, you know, where, you know, all of us get to that point where, like, you walk in a room with somebody you don't like, you say, well, should I, should I look at them? Should I talk to them? Should I not talk to them? Should I walk out of the room? Francis can say, fuck you, and walks out. Um, you know, it's, it, I think every human being on the planet would love to have that freedom to be able to do it, and the franchise did. It's amazing. And that is definitely true. I mean, there's just a little bit of franchise in everybody, but it's amazing that 23 years later, you know, we're still talking about this, but we talked about it a little bit off air when the 20th anniversary came around to WWE came knocking, obviously Joey Styles gave you a call. What do they want to do? What do they want to have Shane Douglas do? Was it something for a DVD, something for the website? What was, you know, what was that call? You know, obviously Vince McMahon orchestrated, but what was the call from Joey Styles all about? Well, he had texted me multiple times and then, and then finally called because I, I had ignored his, uh, uh, his text, was that Vince wanted to do a DVD on the 20th anniversary of the, of the NWA belt throwdown. Well, there was, you know, multiple feelings that, first of all, the fact that NWA basically stole, or the WWE, Vince and the WWF basically stole the NWA in the library, uh, buying it for pennies on the dollar by Jamie Calder. So if, Wherever Jamie Kellner is today, that should be on his resume. They're one of the dumbest business moves ever made in professional wrestling or in business. Um, I didn't see that it was Vince's right to, 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 to make more money off of something else that he had nothing to do with. A, the NWA had nothing to do with Vince McMahon or its success. Uh, the ECW NWA tournament had nothing to do with Vince McMahon. Uh, the franchise character certainly had nothing to do with Vince McMahon. And I, I just couldn't see him... Uh, being part of allowing him to capitalize even further from that. Uh, plus, uh, there was a, an incident. You know, Mick Foley and I, as everybody knows, broke into the wrestling business together. Uh, we remain friends to this day. In fact, he just put a, a very kind uh, thing out on his on his Twitter asking people to follow me, and I saw an avalanche of new followers in the last week, week and a half. Uh, so thanks again, Mick. Uh, that was really cool. Um, and Mick asked me, you know, to, that told me that Vince was going to be doing a, uh, a retrospective on his career, and he really wanted me and Dominic Danucci to be part of it. 
and uh, I would do anything for Mick, uh, as he has done many things for me in the past, and you know we've done for each other. And I was, you know, happy that he'd asked. You know, I thought it was a pretty cool thing. So uh, the WWF uh, sent some people to Pittsburgh to interview me and Dominic Danucci at different times. Dominic and I were not in the building at the same time, and uh, they hooked me up. You know, mic'd me up and everything. And I sat and spoke to them for three plus hours about Mick, told every story I knew and every experience and uh, answered every question that they had. And as we finished, uh, you know, they step out from behind the camera. I start taking the mic off and they said, hey, do you mind if we ask you a couple questions about this? I don't think they asked first. They started talking about the Taz and Sabu angle. And they said, hey, do you mind if we ask you a couple questions about that? I said, no. To me, a couple means two or three. A couple isn't 30. You know, if I say, hey, you got a few bucks? And then you hand me two dollars. You know, I'm at thirty. You know, that's uh, a couple of months. That was thirty or more. And uh, uh, you know, they started you know asking question after question after question. And they very quickly realized that they're doing a second DVD. When I got the paycheck from WWE and saw that the paycheck was for the amount that we'd agreed upon for the Mick Foley DVD, which was a paltry sum. Uh, you know, if this was at, if I was being asked to give a perspective on uh, Ricky Steamboat or uh, you know Dusty Rhodes or Bill Watts or any of those names that I mention in my career all the time, Bill Watts, whoever, uh, you know, I, I certainly would have done it for anywhere near this fee, but I did because it was making he's a friend of mine. When I got the check and it was for just the amount that we had spoken about for the Mick Foley DVD, uh, in my head I thought they would at least double that because I had given them a second. DVD, and uh, they didn't. It was just just the amount, and I thought, you know, there's, and then there's disgusting, and you know, cheap as you go to a restaurant, you're always the guy that eats and drinks but doesn't pay. Um, disgusting is the guy who expects to walk into that bar and eat and drink and not pay. Vince McMahon, in my book, after that experience, is is at the level of disgusting. You know that. You know, to to him, even doubling the paycheck uh, would have been, you know, a, a, a ridiculously uh, low fee, and yet didn't even do that. And so, chalk went up to experience. Vince got me on that one. Now, a couple of years later, where he could have made a shitload of money putting out a 20th anniversary DVD, uh, it's my chance to tell Vince with my favorite finger my answer, and that was my answer. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen the uh, the 20th anniversary DVD, but obviously now you know we can get it from uh, from our video or or, or some, you know someplace else or watch it on YouTube or something. But you know, or this podcast. To, you know, oh yeah, or you can just listen to it right here on this podcast. You're right, very very true. You know, there was a, so many uh, ask franchise anything that came in, which is our, obviously our questions that come in from the fans, and there were so many I had to like. Uh, you know, sift through them and kind of just get a couple good ones. But as we go into the Ask Franchise Anything, there was one here from Nathan65 in Edinburgh. I believe that's somewhere out there in England, I think. I could be wrong, or it could be by Pittsburgh. Oh. I mean, I, I I have no idea. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he said, Shane, were you afraid that anybody was going to shoot on you after? And did you go – you know, after you left the ring or during your promo or anything like that, did you feel that any of the wrestlers were going to shoot on you? Not in the ECW arena, uh, but any time I was at like an independent show, um, 
or, you know, outsiders came into ECW. I was always cognizant of that. And, you know, I was never really wor- that worried about it. You know, I, I couldn't shoot with Kurt Angle, obviously. But, uh, you know, I have a fairly extensive amateur background. And, you know, when I, when I made those comments about shooting with Ric Flair or Shawn Michaels or whomever, uh, those weren't work comments. I would have happily stepped in the ring and shot with any of them. Um, you know, it's, uh, I was that confident in my abilities, uh, and, and not just on a work side of things, but on a shoot. So, you know, there's, there's obviously a way you can tell in, in a match, a professional match, if somebody's going to try to shoot. Uh, I would, unless I completely trusted somebody, I would never expose my back to anybody as, as I wouldn't do an amateur. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not saying I'm the toughest guy in wrestling, but I can certainly hold my own with with my amateur background and with what I've learned in the professional. And, uh, you know, so I was always cognizant of it, but never afraid of it. You know, if it came, it came. And uh, if somebody, you know, kicked my ass in the ring, then kudos to them. It, but if they did that, then they better realize that there was going to be a hell of a receipt coming. And, you know, I certainly wouldn't be approaching it once I realized it was a shoot from a work aspect. Now, the second part of his question was, had the booking gone in another direction, the belt was given to Two Cold Scorpio, would you speculate or would you even know if he would be throwing down the title as well? Or did it never even get to the point where Two Cold was ever involved? Uh, it was never. If, if Paul had decided to go that direction, I would have supported. I would have done the same thing that Scorpio did in our match. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm one of those. I'm a loyalist in the sense that whoever's paying me is going to get what they want from me. They may get some feedback from me that that uh, if I disagree with something or whatever. But if ultimately they decide, as with Vince in the Intercontinental handover when Shawn Michaels did, I implored Vince McMahon not to do that because, uh, and I and I did so before they mentioned about dropping the belt uh, to, immediately to Scott Hall uh, because I had heard for years as a fan growing up, you know, wrestlers and intercontinental champions saying, you'd have to pry this from my cold, dead hands and my blood, sweat, and tears. Or until I get a little bump on that, then I'll just do you. Um, and so I implored Vince not to do that. And, uh, you know, so he, when he ultimately decided that's what he was going to do, I bucked up and went out and did what he wanted me to do because he paid me. Um, that was what he wanted on his on his program, and that was his right to decide that. Uh, so had Paul decided to put two quarters somebody else, and I would have done the exact same thing they graciously did for me. Um, but to my knowledge, I, I'm pretty sure that Paul had not given that option to anybody else. I think Paul that knew that at the end of that night there had to be an in-ring promo that would really cap the night off, and I think that Paul felt in the dressing room that I was probably the, the, the one guy that he knew could deliver that, um, albeit maybe not to the degree that we had seen with that with that now famous promo. But uh, uh, to my knowledge, there was never any any uh, offer made to anybody else to do that spot. Now, here's another ask, franchise anything. Brian from Florida, did you get any of the le- excuse me, did any of the legends get pissed at you for mentioning them in your promo? Anyone pissed that you disgraced the NWA world title? No. Um, uh, like I said earlier, I had called the guys that I knew immediately afterwards uh, to explain you know what had happened and asked them to spread it around. But over the years, I'd never heard anybody. Uh, and I've met pretty much everybody at, at one point or another afterwards, the ones that were still alive at that point. 
I think I've met everybody after that uh, face-to-face, and nobody had ever said anything to me uh, condescending or contrary to what, you know, what it was meant to be, an angle. Now, would there be any residual heat even today, like now? Was there, is there any residual heat, or is that just forgotten now? It's just an awesome wrestling angle. Oh, no. I mean, there, there's still some people out there that harbor ill feelings toward it. Um, you know, my agent will occasionally get uh, questions about whether I can be trusted. Uh, I've said that somebody's never booked me before. Uh, and, and my agent always laughs and says, you know, having worked with, you know, over a dozen wrestlers, uh, he always tells me, you know, you're not going to find anybody easier to work with than Shane Douglas. Um, uh, it, it resonated. You know, it resonated for the good and the bad. And I've always said in my career, talk good about me, talk bad about me, just talk about me. Uh, whether you liked it or disliked it, people still talk about the NWA belt throwdown and the franchise associated to that. So, yeah, there's still there's still people out there that are harbor ill feelings toward it and, and uh, good. It, it, it's, it, I mean, hit them on an emotional level. There's been so much to cover here. This has been really cool, and this is one of the things with starting this show. You know, I knew that we could come across topics such as this, but the timing of the the actual anniversary being on a day we would kind of use as one of our recording days just worked out to be so freaking awesome. And, of course, you know, I want to personally thank you for taking all the time to talk about it on the episode, uh, kind of veering off, you know, what we do with talking, you know, the political stuff, the current events, things of that nature. I also want to thank John for all his just hard work here and digging up all the uh, the factoids and all the matches and all the little nuances that go into the background uh, that put this show together. So hats off to both of you guys for uh, helping put this show uh, to at the almost two-hour mark here, which is uh, which is phenomenal. This has just been absolutely great. But, but, Shane, before we wrap it up here, you know, you've said everything there is to say about it, but just if you can, some closing thoughts. For the fans who are, if they haven't seen it already, first of all, what's your problem? That's the first thing. But two, you know, if you haven't seen this promo, to go out and check it out, kind of look at some of the other things that were going on in the business at the time and see how you could pluck that promo out of August 1994, put it on Monday night, Tuesday night, or any of the other wrestling shows, and see how it would really just be an absolutely – I don't know, off-the-charts promo even by today's standards. So, Shane, give us some final thoughts as we wrap it up here. Just the whole thing, looking back, looking forward, and obviously the impact that it's had. Well, for me, I mean, first of all, thank both of you guys for, for the work you've done getting ready for this show. I said it's easy once I'm triggered on the information. Uh, I don't have any log of that information and don't relive it. <laughs> in fact, I wouldn't have known the 23rd anniversary was today if, if, if John hadn't mentioned it uh, last week. So thank you guys for all the work and getting ready for the episode. Um, it, it, for me, it's it's such a cool part of my history, my legacy. You know, 100 years from now, wrestling fans, hopefully we'll still be talking about this. Um, and so if you'd ask one of the questions, you know, is it part of the franchise uh, uh, aura and legacy? And without a doubt, it's one of the big parts that people certainly think of. Every week I get at least five or ten fans that mention something about the promo. Uh, it's resonated over the years, and meaning it achieved what it was meant to achieve uh, at that time. Um, uh, I was thankful then, and even more thankful now to Paul and God for having trusted to put me in that position uh, to make that decision. Uh, it was a weighted decision. Again, hindsight looking back today was easy. 
you know, if you're a young kid out in wrestling and you get a chance to throw a belt down someplace, do it, you're going to become a big star in the business. If it were only that easy. Um, the Even though ECW had, or, or NWA had been gone for the time that it was, uh, you know, at that time, it's still, the, the, the shadow of, of NWA was still very, very large over the wrestling industry. As many of those guys that you've mentioned, John, were, were still alive and active uh, and still huge names in the business. Uh, you know, so with all that in sight and all we've talked about, for me, it's something I'm incredibly proud of. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it still stirs controversy in people, that there are still some people out there that are pissed off that I did it. Uh, again, that was exactly what that character was meant to do. Piss everybody off, uh, make some of them really happy and want to be a franchise fan, make most of them say, I hope this guy gets, his, gets killed in a car accident tomorrow. Uh, that's exactly what the franchise character was meant to do, to stir those visceral uh, emotions inside your gut. Uh, and something I think is lacking big in the business today. And I have no doubt these kids could deliver in spades. Uh, it'd be my hope that we'd see something in the business that will rekindle some of that uh, surprise and some of that uh, emotion to the business. I think it's, it's, it's incredibly lacking today. Uh, but something that I'll, to the day I die, be proud of and thankful that the fans like on here. One of the things I've been getting, and I'll finish with this, been getting a lot of. Last year at the uh, Legends of the Ring convention, uh, a fan came up with a poster of me with the belt and asked me to write the entire promo on that poster. Now, that's a pretty cool idea, and I did it for him. And I've since then had, you know, probably another 10 or 20 people ask me to do that. Uh, and to me, that's like the epitome, of the, the, the height of cool, you know, that a fan would want you to write down an entire promo on that picture to constantly relive that moment and that experience uh, that did something for them as a fan. You know, in this business, you're getting to be a wrestler uh, or any kind of entertainer. All you can do is hope that you reach the fans in some way. Uh, as a heel, you hope to reach them in their gut because they walk out of there with steam coming out of their ears. That's your job. Uh, the fact that fans still remember that, and want me to write that down on the poster for them to, to put, hang up in their house someplace is far beyond what I could have ever imagined it being at the time I did it. Uh, very proud of it and thankful to the fans. And a lot of great memories. It's fun, fun episode to do because it uh, made me relive and had me uh, happily remember a lot of a lot of those that night. As we were talking about this episode the whole night. I'm running through it in my head, you know, and the, the individual matches and the dressing room and everything. It, it truly, you, know, you hear the phrase magic in a bottle or lightning in a bottle. I, it truly was that. Uh, and, and it felt that way that night. So, you know, thank you to everybody in the dressing room for that. And thanks, thank you to Paul and Todd for allowing me to be that guy. And, and thanks to the fans for, for remembering it. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And thank you to anybody who sent in questions. Like John said, we kind of plucked what we thought were going to be the absolute uh, standouts only because a lot of them, you know, kind of repetitive. A lot of the same, uh, you know, uh, basically the same qu- kind of questioning in different kind of uh, asking order. But uh, thank you to everybody who did reach out. The Twitter response was absolutely phenomenal. And yes, thank you to uh, Mick Foley for that little bump for Shane there because that was crazy this week to see Shane's Twitter numbers literally going through the roof. Tr- Shane, I think you're almost uh, trending uh, territory there. I think we got to get. Uh, Shane Douglas, the franchise, uh, a trend on Twitter. But, yeah, Mick Foley, the man, uh, cannot say enough good things about what he also did in ECW. And hopefully down the road 
maybe we will cover a couple more different topics exclusive uh, to a show, just like we did tonight, like we did with the Ask Franchise Anything episode a few weeks back. And here we are at episode 12. Moving forward to episode 13, got something pretty cool in the works uh, for the next show. I think uh, Shane might uh, have his uh, taped fist ready to fight because I think it could be a pretty interesting episode, uh, a little duking it out with some political flavor. But as we close it out here, you can follow us on Twitter. First, the two-man power trip is at two-man power trip. And for the franchise, you can follow them at the franchise SD. It's all on Twitter. Join the conversation on there. Don't forget to follow our show account as well on Twitter. And please, if you haven't seen anything out of us yet, get to IRWnetwork.com. It's very easy to play it on there. They keep on telling us the app is coming. So as we wrap it up here, Shane, please tell the fans where you may be coming up in their neck of the woods and also close it out as only the franchise can here on the IRW Network and the 23rd anniversary on the night you change the sport of professional wrestling. I love it. I had a great, great time this week. Uh, next week, this coming weekend, I'll be in uh, Charleston, West Virginia, uh, on Thursday night, Friday night, I'll be in Rockstar Pro in Dayton, Ohio. Saturday, I'll be in Columbus, Ohio, uh, signing autographs. Uh, I'll have that information posted online. And uh, uh, looking forward to the weekend and uh, have a little private get together to come in this weekend. And hope everybody has a great week out there. Thank you to all the fans for the great uh, questions for this week. Uh, all the new followers on Twitter and, and Facebook. Uh, uh, really much appreciated, and like I always tell the fans on there, hopefully we'll always have something uh, interesting and thought-evoking uh, uh, to follow. Uh, hopefully do the same thing with some of those questions uh, whenever I post. Uh, get some people thinking, get some people pissed off, get some people uh, uh, to ally with what I'm saying, but uh, get people thinking. But uh, to wrap it up for the show, for episode number 12, a dozen now under our belt, uh, thanks to everybody following so far on the IRW network. And uh, if you want to listen to it right here, you make sure you get here every week to listen to it for the new episodes. 13 coming next week. Either listen to it or get your ass franchised. <laughs> thanks for listening to the two man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.